Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent Kyle Serafin. are in short supply. Reject the noise, ask bold questions, and pursue the truth with FBI whistleblowers and founding suspendables, Garrett O'Boyle and Steve Friend. This is the American Radicals Podcast. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. Today's Thursday. It's December the 21st, and we have a huge Thursday, and I also have a Steve Friend. It is the American Radicals Podcast for Thursday. We're Really excited to do a collaborative effort here between the Kyle Serafin Show and the American Radicals. Let's hit it. This is going to be a two for one, folks. We're going to be doing both streams at the same time because I brought Steve Friend, Garrett O'Boyle, and our outstanding fellow suspendable, Steve Baker. We're going to be rocking and rolling here, and then this is going to get really wild. So let's throw all four of us on the screen here and uh, introduce the gents. Again, Steve Baker, he's probably our, he might be our second most popular guest. Garrett is actually the most popular guest that's ever been on the TKSS. But, uh, but Steve, you were a very, very close second, and I'm happy to have all of you guys on here. These are my favorite people to talk to. We just like started riffing yesterday and it was like an hour when i looked out at the phone i was like good god we have stuff to do here steve welcome to the show steve baker welcome to the show yeah thank you for having me again all right, we're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, folks, let me do a couple of ad reads up front. I want to uh, thank the sponsors that bring these things to us. And then we are going to uh, we're going to have so much fun with it. I've got some some American Bowie experience. Many of you guys have no idea how Steve Baker has made his living for most of most of his life, his adult life, going all the way through since he was a teenager. So we're going to cover it from soup to nuts all the way through. And uh, and then we're going to basically have a circular firing squad. You'll notice one guy is not wearing a black shirt. That's the guy getting jumped into the gang. That's how this works, y'all. Um, let's let's do a quick one with Catholic Vote because they do uh, support and keep the uh, the lights on here at the Kyle Serafin Show. Uh, Ryan, can we throw them up on the screen, folks? CatholicVote.org. We're still doing the uh, Catholic Hero of 2023 vote. You guys can do that. Again, we voted for Mark Cal. You vote for whoever you like. Um, we do appreciate that. But check out the loop. Put in your email address and your zip code. Loop me in. You'll get a great email full of news every single day. Today would be one of those days you want to do that. And there it is. Scroll a little further down. Boom. There's the finals. Me and Mark Howe, a pro-life father who protected his son and faced jail time from the DOJ. We're going to be talking DOJ stuff today, so that's actually pretty relevant. Uh, get in there and get your vote registered. I don't think you have to do much. You don't have to pay him anything. You just go in there and do your vote. And we do appreciate your support there. Let's also say thanks real quick to... Uh, uh, Patriot Coolers, who are my OG buddies, and uh, and then we're going to launch into this. So Patriot Coolers at PatriotCoolers.com. Use promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E, gets you 10% off, and you can check out all their stuff. It's probably a little late for Christmas, but, uh, you know, some of you guys are going to be doing you're going to be doing Christmas parties after Christmas. And just remember, the gift of the Magi goes all the way to Epiphany. You actually have 12 days of Christmas. That's the way that we do it here. Um, that actually is where the gift-giving tradition comes from. Many of you guys may know that if you uh, if you read scripture. Check out the options they've got there. Promo code Kyle saves you 10%. 50 bucks or more, you're going to get free shipping. Very easy to do. And a great company. Supports us. Supports disabled vets. What else you want to do? All right, gentlemen, are you guys ready to just launch? Like, full bore launch into this? Let's go, man! I've been waiting for a week. I, I I've been following Steve Baker on media. He's he's getting the the white glove treatment. We're ready to jump him in the gang. All right, that's good. No no more soft touches. Steve, do you want to announce the big news that uh, Blaze just put out today? We'll get you started on that. And I know Ryan's got the uh, the article we can show. 
Yeah, I knew two days ago, and then I was completely uh, blindsided this morning. I didn't think that the Blaze would go public uh, with that, but my editor-in-chief at the Blaze, uh, Matt Peterson, wrote a uh, piece, and when I woke up and was just scrolling through <laughs> the Blaze this morning, I saw that there was a, another uh, column about me, and that column announced the fact that I am now no longer just a contributor to the blaze, but they are bringing me on full time as a full time uh, investigative journalist. Uh, so I will be um, it's, it's actually very, very strange for me because I am uh, one of those people who is I've never worked for anybody. You know, I, I haven't had a W2 wage earner job since I was in high school. My senior year of high school. Yeah, you're the exact opposite of what we are. I think most of us, uh, me and the other boys here, have uh, essentially always worked for somebody else. And we are now kind of entering into the world where that is not the case. Ryan, we bring up topic two real quick. I want to read from the article, if you don't mind, Steve, and just uh, embarrass you just a little bit, because I think what why they're willing to do this is so important. Um, this is Matthew Peterson, who you said is your editor. He said, we will not stop covering the lies of January 6th. The FBI says that Blaze media's January 6th reporter won't need to turn himself in until after Christmas. Our response is to promote him to full-time employee. Scrolling just a little further down here, it says, after years of holding the threat of imprisonment over Baker, and that's you, um, if that's supposed to be some kind of gift from the Justice Department, because they said you don't have to turn yourself in, which we're going to cover long form, folks. Don't worry about that. Uh, we may be forgiven for turning up our noses at their gesture. We won't be backing down. Instead, I'm proud to announce that we've offered Steve Baker a full-time salaried position as an investigative journalist, effective start of the new year, which he has accepted. And you guys should be following Baker on X and congratulate him. That's coming directly from the blaze, but we'll tell you the same thing. If you're not following Steve, I highly recommend you do so. The stuff that he's been breaking about J6 is, it really is groundbreaking compared to what everyone else is doing. You've got so much time on the ground, but we're going to do... We're going to go back inception to date because the first time you and I talked, it was like three hours. I think we can distill your backstory, but I really want people to hear it because we do have a new audience, if that's cool with you. Yeah, we'll start wherever you want to and uh, take it wherever you want to. All right, Ryan, we've got a, a pretty fun thing to start with. Let's do video number one. We're going to get warmed up here. We're going to get a little bit of Steve Baker, the, the, the Steve Baker that has existed for all time, the non-W2 Steve Baker. And, and then we're going to tell people how you became an investigative journalist. But let's tell that story real quick. Let's do video one. Pretty shit. It was, it's, it's that, you know, stuff to do. And so Danny goes, I really want you to do Young Americans. And I went, what? <laughs> and so I, so I locked myself in my bathroom for about three months and came out with a song. All right. Thank you. 
It's the American Bowie experience. Steve, what do you got to say for yourself, Mr. Baker? Well, I'll just say uh, I'll start off by saying that that really good looking long haired guy, you know, the rock god uh, that was standing next to me playing basic guitar. That's my son. So uh, very proud to have spent some uh, few years on stage with my own son. Uh, there's nothing better than that. But uh, yeah, no, I, I, I started off as a kid being a trumpet player is all I ever wanted to be. Uh, I had my designs. Actually, I was hoping at some point in my life to be a studio player. And then when I was 19 years old, I was in college. I was a trumpet performance major in school. And I got a call from a touring band that was traveling all over the world. And they um, invited me to join them. So I quit school, went on the road and well, to say that my life was changed at that moment is an understatement because that's what first put me behind the Iron Curtain and actually doing Iron Curtain uh, ministry and also some subversive work working with underground dissidents there during that uh, time. I mean, when I when I joined the band, you know, Brezhnev was the, you know, the, the chairman of the Communist Party and sat at the head of the Politburo there. That's how far back that was. I just want people to digest what you just said. You just said that put me behind the iron curtain. Like you just kind of casually threw that out there. <laughs> like most people don't say that. That might be the crowning achievement or the sort of the wildest thing that some people have done in their entire life. Uh, and that was sort of like the entry point into this weird life that you've lived. Is that is that fair? Yeah, that's exactly what happened because uh, it, it was this this thing that I parachuted into when I was 19 years old. I had no idea that two weeks later, I would be in a recording studio in San Francisco doing the demo for what would become the theme song for the 1980 summer Moscow Olympics. And I had, uh, I mean, I just literally was blindsided by this whole, ex whole experience. And then a year after that, after the embargo from the West was lifted because Jimmy Carter and all the other Western uh, countries boycotted the Moscow games in 1980. And then a year later in 81, this band was doing an official tour in the Soviet Union. I played on Soviet television and, you know, everything began from there. Yeah. And when you said subversive work, do you want to dig into that a little bit and tell the tell the lads? Not not everybody. Like I said, we got a newish audience and subversive work behind the Iron Curtain may um, may sound a little flippant for what was going on. You want to kind of describe it a little bit? Yeah, this this organization uh, was a uh, basically it was a, it was a <laughs> it was a group that did work not only in uh, behind Iron Curtain countries, but other um, uh, disadvantaged parts of the world, China, South Africa, uh, places like that. And there was four bands on the road at all times. One or two of the bands were always touring in North America, basically raising money for the two bands that were working overseas. And then when we, we would then switch continents. So we were at nine months at a time, then we would jump continents, um, uh, alternate continents with each other. And so our, our tour put us in Europe and put us on the road there for several months. And then our visas were approved to go into the Soviet Union. And, and essentially our job was at that time to our, our cover, it was our cover was to be a band. And we were, we were a real band. And uh, we, we uh, would show up on the border with our tour bus, go through all of the um, uh, searches and, you know, uh, bend over, you know, rubber glove treatment and everything that they had to put us through to get us in. And then once we were in, we had uh, literally hidden inside of our equipment. We had tape duplicating uh, equipment. We had recording um, studio equipment for these underground dissidents. We had, back then, we had printing press parts and plates uh, for these dissidents as well. We don't need those you know, printing press parts anymore, but that's what we were carrying over back in 80, 81, and before and after. And so it was it was actually a, um, uh, a very, very interesting group, and we worked directly with uh, some very 
powerful organizations. For instance, during the Reagan administration, we were working with, uh, <laughs> believe it or not, the Secretary of Interior, James Watts. Now, the, the Secretary the interior department of interior had black ops money as well. And that was used to fund these types of subversive or, uh, operations. And, and that's essentially what we were doing is we were supporting the underground dissident movement, uh, Christian dissident, uh, and Christian dissidents inside the Soviet union. And then I, uh, took that another step further and eventually started going over there by myself as well and doing essentially the same thing. And my cover was as a, a musician, I would, I would go in, I would have my, uh, my trumpet gig bag over my shoulder, my, my, you know, my duffel bag with my clothes and uh, over the other shoulder. And I would cross into these countries and that was my job. I would, I would tell them that I was on holiday from touring in the, in Europe and I would <laughs> Steve, can I ask you a question about that? Yeah. So it, it's a fascinating story to hear that you did that. That's part of your life. And you're literally doing God's work to help Christian dissidents and other dissidents and spread freedom. And now here you are today in America, viewed as a dissident. How do you uh, hold those things simultaneously in your head? And what's your reaction to what our own government is doing to you now, especially looking back on your own history and what you've done on the, you know, the side of freedom and truth and for Christ as well. Did you see my tweet invitation this morning to this broadcast? I actually invited all of our FBI uh, watchers to, to join us. I, I actually sent a text to my FBI case agent last night and invited him and all of his buddies. And, and what I Craig? Said, what's that? That's Craig. Is that his name? Yeah. Craig Noyes. Yeah, good. And then I, I, um, I invited them and I, I said something to the effect of, uh, you know, take a break and have a little holiday cheer with us today and uh, a little break from your gulag archipelago lifestyle. So yeah, <laughs> that experience when I was 19, 20 years old affected my entire life all the way up until now. We need Craig. to connect the dots here. Uh, the fact that, that Steve Baker was penetrating into the USSR to bring them Levi jeans uh, and then that fortune led to Dan Goldman ascending to become a congressional representative to then interrogate Garrett and I to turn America into a communist nation. I mean, as they said in the chat, it's it's a circle of life. Mm -hmm. yeah, Garrett, but to answer your question more specifically, I think this this does ring hard, ring true for me right now, more more so than uh, you know, I'm not going to compare myself in any way, shape or form to some of the more abused of the J6 defendants that have been through this process. I don't know if you saw, I posted a postcard letter that was received last night by yeah. Angel Harrison, the, mm -hmm. the wife of uh, retired Sergeant uh, Ken Harrelson, who was one of the Oath Keepers, who was not involved in any of the planning or the up um, uh, upstaging of the, you know, of the event. He was just called on January 3rd by the head of the Florida Oath Keepers, Kelly Meggs, and said, hey, Ken, we need you to provide security and actually head the security for one of the side stages, one of the legally permitted by the Capitol Police side stages on the Capitol property that day. And so after sitting in the ellipse down where the president was speaking at the invitation of the United States Secret Service, this is where those guys were sitting watching the, the president's speech. Then it was time to lead their uh, protectees over, you know, the mile, mile and a half walk over to the Capitol. And that's what Kenny did. And then when he got there, you know, he, he made the fatal mistake of following the crowd into the building. And of course, when he got inside, he did what an oath keeper 
does is he saw a distressed officer immediately called over three oath keepers other ones they lined up before, between him and the more agitated protesters they stood a line there's we have actually photography and, and video of kenny holding out his arms and holding crowds back from officer harry dunn and then harry dunn uh repaid him by perjuring himself in trial and telling the jury that this was an agitated and a completely contentious um uh confrontation and that those oath keepers were trying to get down the stairs uh to attack other officers and blah 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 you know just just this this made up tale of tales and and then as a result of that uh, uh these guys were convicted punished and uh, framed i i'm convinced of that and that's what happened but i but this letter what this postcard that i was talking about was received by uh angel his wife and just just evil, vile, and yet couched it in words of, you know, this is, we, we're Christians. And if I look at the Bible, this silly and everything, you, you guys are, you guys are not the defenders of democracy. You guys are, are uh, the insurrectionists and the unholy and blah, 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 and, blah, and blah. Christo-fascist, no less. Yeah, I Christo, like that. There, there's, there's the word. I don't have it up in front of me, but I'm glad. That's you all right. Do. That, that sat in my head last night. I love yeah. the idea of a Christo-fascist just because um, everything about it is, the, the, you know, that's an oxymoron in and of itself, but uh, Steve, what I wanted, the reason why I liked having you tell your story of going into the, the Soviet Union and doing the Iron Curtain work is because you participated in intelligence operations. That's what those are. Those are influence operations. Mm -hmm. And what I'd like to do is zoom back out since you've been doing such a good job and such an intense job of covering J6. Can you give people who don't really have a great grasp on it, who haven't spent the hundreds of hours that you have watching all the footage and you know doing all the interviews, can you give people your overall you know, fair and balanced kind of take on this is what you think happened. And, and a lot of it you have evidence for, which we'll talk about too. Yeah. I, I will start the answer to that question by telling you that I have changed my mind and I have vacillated and I have, I have been back and forth, sometimes 180 degrees on a lot of specific incidences and issues and, and, um, uh, you know, events that took place that day. But in the overall context, that hasn't changed much because what I saw with my own eyes and what I did, uh, what I captured on my own video that day, and then overlaying that with some people that I really trust, uh, that have much, much more, um, uh, experience than I do and in, in viewing these types of influence operations as you uh, correctly identified it. it and I'm talking about you know special ops guys that that's what they did this is they spent many <laughs> many uh, years on the ground doing this kind of thing in other countries Middle East South America Central America etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm -hmm. and as they looked at those videos with me and they would identify the same things that I saw that day it, I, that's the one thing I haven't changed is that I saw with my own eyes, I'm not going to say yet that it was planned from top to bottom, but I will tell you that I know that it was allowed to happen. My investigations have shown me that from the command center of the Capitol police, beginning with the intelligence department, who had every single thing that they needed to know in advance, not just three days in advance, but as many as two weeks in advance, they had been warned about everything. It's a very, very uncommon knowledge is that the Department of Defense, both Chris Miller, who was acting sec def at the time, as well as uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Milley, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, both of them wanted to cancel all what they call First Amendment protest 
permits on January 6th because of the threat that they believe that was imminent that day. They passed that information along to the Capitol Police. That information was never disseminated, not to their frontline officers, not to their middle command level officers, and not even to Chief Sund. And that's an interesting story in and of itself, which we can or can't get into later, depending on time. But yeah. the point being is, is that they went into they went into that day completely unprepared. I believe that the Capitol Police themselves were set up, and when I say that, I'm talking about the frontline officers. I'm not talking about uh, command. But as they were watching this from the command center, they executed essentially a what, what I you know I've I've euphemistically called it a, a rope a dope operation. It's like you know let them in, let them in a little bit more let them in a little bit more. And that's what I saw develop in my, in, in my own eyes. And now I believe it more so than ever after all of these layers of the onion that I've been pe peeling back over the last three years. I think we broke down the rope-a-dope, but for those of you who are not boxers or have not watched Rocky movies or any of these kind of things, if it's not part of your uh, lexicon, the rope-a-dope is essentially letting somebody tire themselves out. And so when Steve says like they, you know, they're fighting for everything they've got at a, at one barricade, you give them another, you know, oh, you, oh, you've triumphed, you've managed to get yourself another eight feet or whatever, and then you just stop them cold there again and continue to do it. It's interesting that you don't think that it was completely centrally planned. I have the same instinct. I have far less time looking at it, but. The idea that it would be centrally planned is antithetical to everything I know about the way the government works and the, everything I know about how these types of intelligence operations would be run, especially because the FBI was involved and there's so many field offices. There's 56 field offices and the boys can talk about this with me as well, but it's more likely than not every single field office was individually incentivized to have their own cases built up and have their own sources roll through it and have their own sort of uh, statistical accomplishments for being embedded and, and disrupting and for reporting in on and all this kind of stuff. And then when that all happens, everybody is kind of working towards the same goal, but not everybody is communicating with each other what they're trying to do. It just turns out to basically be the shit show that we saw, which is that the government was able to run the biggest case that's ever been done. They were able to get a huge budget against it. I mean, they opened up new offices for the FBI in D.C. to do this stuff. Oh, they not only open up new FBI offices, they're now opening up Capitol Police offices right. on the um, the heels of this and under the justification of this all over the country. The first two were in Tampa and San Francisco, and now it was just announced they're opening several other offices, uh, Texas and, and other states as well. Capitol Maybe. Police. Yeah, I know. Maybe the, maybe the guy, um, Garrett and Steve, you guys want to kind of weigh in on the idea that we have a congressional security force that is not under the executive that's now doing some sort of enforcement actions and not the area that they're charged with well you have the the police aspect which is supposed to fall under the executive branch they're going to execute the, the laws that the, the legislative branch drafts and, and pushes through and now they, they are under the direction of the legislative branch so it's this weird quasi they they respond to both branches so it's me this sort of a, a separation of powers issue and then I also think we have this issue of mission creep that rolls in because they've overfunded the Capitol Police, and then they're going to justify this budget by expanding. They're going to want to build these satellite offices so that they can use the budget and say, look, we use the budget, give us more next year. And the, the problem is that they have these special agents, I guess, with the Capitol Police that are going to claim that they have 1811 criminal investigator authority. So ergo, they can investigate all matters of federal criminal law, and they're just going to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. I, I was having a conversation about this a few days ago. It, to me, it's no different than like a, uh, a federal uh, wildlife guy who was, he was out on, on a, uh, a natural park or something like that, natural res reserve, who then just sets up shop inside city limits and says, 
you know, look, I have federal arrest authority. I'm just going to conduct investigations here. It's like, well, yes, that's in keeping with being an 1811 criminal investigator, but it's not in keeping with your actual jurisdiction, which what your lane of expertise is. We don't want the DEA doing complex financial crimes. Uh, they, they are authorized to do it, but uh, they're just going to, again, they're going to ask for forgiveness rather than permission and then challenge the states like Florida to say, well, you know, there's a supremacy issue here. We can't stop them from from coming down here and, and expanding their efforts. What do you think, Garrett? So I heard they're getting one of these outposts or whatever you want to call it right right here in my stomping grounds in the Milwaukee area. So congratulations. I know. I can't wait to to go and just turn myself in and say, hey, guys, here I am. Um, but uh <laughs> No, it's I, th I think Steve nailed it about the mission creep and the the future of what this is going to turn into. This is police state. I mean, that's a topic we talk about often. And this is just another primary example. So you have the Capitol Police. So they are supposed to be like you, you've talked about before, basically glorified security guards telling you uh, which direction, whatever monument uh, that you want to go see is in. And now they're going to be popping up all over the country. What is that about? I mean, that's that's police state. It is indeed. Uh, folks, we're talking to Steve Baker, who is an investigative journalist now full time with The Blaze, which we're really excited to, to be able to announce that they announced just now on their website. And so if you're not following Steve, please do so on Twitter and we'll put his uh, handle out there. It's been tagged all over the place, but it's uh, TPC for The Pragmatic Constitutionalist, the number four USA, TPC for USA. How pro is that, uh, Baker? What do you think? I get it. <laughs> awesome. It's, it's not the easiest thing to roll off the tongue, but we got that. Uh, if you're just joining us, please make sure you've hit like on Rumble. If you're not joining us on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin, uh, you guys can see it here. And if you're seeing the replay, we are playing it on the American Radicals podcast as well, because I've got American Radicals, Steve Friend and Garrett O'Boyle. We're kind of a circular firing squad right here on Mr. Baker, hitting him with all the peppered questions. Steve, will you tell people your what brought you to this January 6th investigation? Because I, I think some people don't realize that like you were there and you're walking around and that you did some pretty notable coverage on that day. Yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> you talk about a life-changing event for a, and a lifetime ago, right? Yeah, it seems like it's been, you know, we're, we're literally a couple of weeks away from it being three years ago. And what got me there was not January 6th. It was not President Trump's call because there was going to be something wild. It was not because, uh, well, anybody that knows me and has followed my writings for, you know, forever knows that I've never been a Trump supporter. So it was, it was not that which brought me to January 6th. It was COVID. It was the COVID lockdowns that got me there. I, I'm, I'm not a rally attend. I don't go to political rallies. I, uh, I'm a very, very independent person. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm a, what you would, I guess, characterize as a small L libertarian. I've never even been a member of that party. And, and so, um, I don't, I don't attend political events. I hate them. I don't like sitting for an hour or two hours and listening to politicians lie to me. It's not my thing. And I've never done that. I'm also not a riot chaser. The first time I ever attended a protest event in my life was the COVID lockdowns. Uh, uh the, there was a, uh, I think two weeks after they started the, the, flat, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve thing. Uh, there was a, here in North Carolina, Raleigh at the, at the state Capitol, they did a reopen NC rally. And that was the first time I ever attended an event in my life because it affected me personally, because being and growing up and being for 40 plus years in the music business, um, in all manners, uh, uh, all 
facets of the music business, but mostly live performance. They took my job away from me. And I didn't know at that time how long they were going to do that. But, you know, as we all know, two weeks to flatten the curve became two months, became almost two years. Uh, and for an, a year and a half, the government told me I could not work. I could not earn a living. And I was in one, as I, as I mentioned earlier, having been one of those self-employed people for 40 years, I was in that little nexus where I didn't get anything. You know, those of you that got your $1,200 stimulus checks, I, I never got one. You weren't one of those guys because no, you, your income didn't qualify that way. Right. As, as if, as if a year and a half of unemployment, uh, 12, you know, a couple of, uh, $1,200 checks was going to make any difference whatsoever. No, that's true too. But I, I want to hone in on this too. Cause I think that's where I think people have empathy for things that they can experience. A lot of people got locked out of their jobs. Some of them got paid to stay home. A lot of people didn't restaurant employees yeah. screwed. Yeah. A lot of service workers screwed. Um, you know, people who were involved in dealing with the public, whether it be events or actually, you know, performing on stage and all this kind of stuff, people were screwed. And, and it brought together people from the left and the right. Like you say, lowercase L, I'm sure a lot of your bandmates are pretty lib minded because that's just the way that people who are creative and musicians tend to be right. Uh, and they tend to, they tend to look at the world a little differently than people who are out there, you know, building construction or doing anything else. But they all had a right to earn a living, we thought. And then this was a uniting piece. So I, I think that's really interesting. The other question that I want to hone in on, some people, I think, have tried to put the journalist banner on as a shield. Like, no, no, no. Because we saw this in Antifa riots. Oh, I'm a journalist. That's why I'm here throwing this Molotov cocktail. And this is why I'm, I'm being an asshole and shooting laser pointers at cops. I'm a journalist. I happen to be involved in like weird activism and rioting. You had done journalism for a long time. You covered it for me uh, the first time. Can you give people a quick progression going back to the early uh, the early days of the Internet and, and kind of how that progressed into being a, a journalist as one of your sort of hobby jobs? Yeah. Writing has always been a passion of mine anyway. In fact, in fact, I had submitted and had published articles in some music magazines all, all the way back in the 80s. And then when the 90s came around and we learned of these things called Prodigy and CompuServe and AOL, I, you know, I had accounts on all of these platforms and began to really, um, didn't know the way to say it, I, I, I began to um, sharpen my sword, practice that which I enjoyed, uh, two things that I enjoyed passionately were writing and, and politics. And so those were my hobbies on the side, my reading. I, I was, I'm a voracious reader of all things political, uh, historical, and uh, that that gave me the opportunity to start exercising that muscle. Because, uh, you know, I spent so many long weeks and months on, on tour buses and, and bouncing around and travel vans with a trailer behind me and that sort of thing being in this business. And so I had that time to write when I was in that those circumstances. And so this outlet was afforded to me during the early 90s. And of course, all of that progressed ultimately to MySpace. MySpace became Facebook. Facebook became a blog. And then, um, and then COVID changed everything for me because, as I said, you know, the first two weeks of the of the flatten the curve lockdown were amusing to me. I sat on my front porch every day with my laptop in my lap, cigar hanging out of my mouth, a drink sitting on the table beside me. And I, <laughs> I watched the empty because I live near downtown Raleigh and I just watched the empty streets and no traffic. And I just wrote I wrote about what was happening. 
in real time right there. Did, did you have the same feeling that I did that it would look like a zombie apocalypse? Like it yes. was the beginning, the beginning scenes of the zombie apocalypse. Yes, yes, okay. absolutely. And I, and, and the, of course, you know, you know what else I had sitting beside me just in case the zombies did start coming down. The I road. have to imagine. Yeah, right, right. So, so the, that was always there because I didn't know when they would start coming down the streets. So then two weeks became two months. And at once we were about two months into this, I realized just reading the tea leaves politically and globally uh, that this was not going away, that this was in fact, you know, look, when we talk about a pandemic, I don't go so far as, as to read it in the same way that that movie read it. But there was no doubt after two months that this was in fact a concerted effort by uh, global forces uh, as a psyop on the world to see how far they could get by with this and and, and another rope dope you know let, let, let's see how far we can go and and uh, they they got way too far in my mind but the point being is is that a couple months in i decided to actually i made a conservative concerted shift in my thinking and i moved that which had been basically a hobby from I had never monetized my right. I, I had, I had articles that would go viral that were, you know, getting hundreds of thousands or, or even up into over a million views and never monetized it. Hey, it never, Steve, because it just wasn't I, a, I didn't need it. And B I'm just, you know, old dog, new tricks. The, the whole <laughs> internet thing is, you know, still, still confounds me. But the, the point being is that I, made that decision to make that shift and I moved, I, I switched chairs in my life and I took the, um, the, that music thing that had been so vital to me since I was a child. And I put that in the co-pilot seat and I moved the other into the captain's chair. And that was the shift in my life. And that happened early on in 2020. So now you fast forward a couple more months and I'm getting really antsy because I like to be on the road. I like to travel. I, 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 I am one of those people that loves to live out of a suitcase. I would rather live out of a suitcase than a house. And, uh, I like being in a different place every day. And so when it, it became apparent to me that they were not going to allow me to go back to work for some time, I hit the road. And I started organizing meetups with uh, my blog followers all over the country. I traveled to 28 different states during the lockdowns doing uh, meetups. Some of them were like almost like speakeasy type places. If we were in a city or, or a state with severe lockdown restrictions, then that's how we handled it. We would meet secretly somewhere in somebody's home. Uh, other places uh, actually would open up the back doors to the bar, the restaurant, let us in. And then, you know, if it had a conservative owner or something like that. And then, of course, when we got to Texas and Florida, we had no problem meeting in in um, uh, public public venues. So it was different everywhere. And then it just happened that in the process of all of this, there was an announcement on December 19, 2020, that there was going to be this big event in DC and President Trump said it's going to be wild. And so I put it on the calendar. It's part of my travel schedule. It, 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 it was no more complicated to me than that. And I wasn't going there because I thought that, um, well, I, I, I shouldn't say this. I should, I should more accurately say this is that I did wonder, okay, in this big event, is the president really going to unleash the Kraken that we had heard about as it relates to election fraud or something like that. And I had not written a word about election fraud other than I understood the anomalies and yeah, you know, because I, I'm pretty good at math. And so 
there were things that I'd seen that I didn't have answers for, but I never took a position on it because again, it's just, it was just not my thing. And I was more focused on COVID at the time anyway. And in fact, I was in the middle of writing a COVID book with a co-author when all of this went down, when January 6th went down and that kicked the, you know, the, the legs out from under our book project. Sure. And so actually me and the co-author, a writer of some esteem, as I like to refer to him, he and I both t- put it on the calendar and we went to uh, Washington, drove up there on the 5th from Raleigh and then um, showed up at the Washington Monument about 930 that morning after breakfast. And once again, another life changing event took place and and it was nothing that I expected. It was nothing that I planned. I, look, I'm, I, I'm not a member of any uh, militia group, never have been. Don't anticipate that I ever will be. Hope that we don't ever enter a time in our, our, our country's life where I have to join one of those. But the point being is, is that I had, you know, I had no associations with uh, Oath Keepers or the uh, Proud Boys or the Three Percenters or, you know, North Carolina militias or anything of the sort. I went up there as a journalist with my microphone, camera, uh, tripod, and I was going to do man on the street interviews after the speeches and get impressions from the average American, as I had been doing traveling to 28 states before, about all the things, the speeches, uh, if he, if, if Trump did unleash the Kraken, I certainly wanted to get everybody's impression on that. And, uh, and, and, and quite quite curious for me at the time, I, I actually wrote a couple of days before I went to DC, I actually said these words that I did not anticipate that very many people would show up because it was, you know, it's January and it was on a Wednesday and conservatives work, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't bust people in paid protesters at 50 bucks a piece of George Soros money. Um, for these things. And I thought on it's a getting Wednesday, very conspiratorial right now. We're going to start working that way. I like it. <laughs> I, but I, but I, but I just, I just assumed that, uh, it would be a moderate gathering and I had no idea what I was about to witness and see. Mm-hmm. Steve. So I, I, you know, I just did my quick Google search and we're on day, uh, 1,375 of uh, 15 days of flatten the curve. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I know you covered that, uh, pretty extensively for, for a time before you transition over to the January 6th. So you've, you've covered both pretty, pretty in depth. I know they're very different, um, but do you get a sense, just the 30,000 foot view of it, that there's an overlap of uh, a government overreach aspect to it? Um, is, is that That's generally my sort of takeaway. It's It's been, uh, not saying it didn't happen, not saying that it, there wasn't something that organically wasn't there. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in your camp where like the pandemic thing, I get a little bit cautious about it. Uh, but I think it was like, let's not let a crisis go to waste. And that, and that to me is where I see the, the Kamala Harris men diagram overlapping, which always gets, uh, gets me a little bit uh, up and nervous about the, the enemy of the state type of government that where we've been seeing the last few years. Do you, do you see that overlap? Yeah, I will tell you that if the January 6th event, the uh, alleged stolen election, et cetera, et cetera, was the straw that broke the camel's back that led to the rioting that took place that day, the hay, you know, the, the, the bale of hay that was already there was COVID because this, this is when you go back and you look at things again, uh, you can, you can go back and, and see 2020 through, you know, the rear view mirror here is that these were 
people that were able to show up for an event on a Wednesday because how many of those were out of work? I actually said that to my colleague that day. We were standing out in the Washington Monument lawn, you know, freezing our asses off, waiting for the event, you know, waiting for the speeches to begin. And I actually, as the crowd was growing and it was becoming a spectacle, unlike anything I had ever seen in my life, I actually said those words to him. I said, do you think that this is because these people have are out of work right now that they can come from all over the country on a Wednesday. And certainly that was true of a lot of them. So there was, there had been a nearly year long buildup of incredible frustration over psychologically. I mean, this, this was, this was a psychological operation that had been um, uh, enacted and had been perpetrated against all of these people, all Americans. And this was the group that was most frustrated by it because they understood and they could see what the source was and what the reason behind it was. And then the election happened. And then those people saw that three o'clock in the morning event where the voting was stopped and the tabulators stopped running. And then when they, they crawled in bed and they woke up the next morning, everything had flipped over the other way. And they had never seen that before in their life, legitimate or otherwise, real or not. I'm, I'm not here to take a side on that. It took me 22 months before me personally, I actually determined that it was in a stolen election. And it wasn't the vote count itself or how that was done. It was Mark Zuckerberg on Joe Rogan saying that he had taken the direction from the FBI to spike, suppress, and delete the information about Hunter Biden's laptop. And right then I went, that's a stolen election. Uh, As far as January 6th goes, and you've obviously covered this and researched this more extensively than than all of us could probably do in in our lifetimes combined. I know you've devoted your life to it for the last three years. Um, Here's my sort of general answer. When when I go around and, and do speaking engagements, People ask me what my opinion is of January 6th. I, mean, I, I want to see if, if you think that I'm tracking in the right direction here or if I've got this all wrong uh, because I've been sort of typecast as like this January 6th whistleblower where all my stuff was right of boom. It was after the actual incident. It was what the FBI is doing after the fact that I had a problem with. But what actually happened that day, I think that there were provocateurs who were there who were getting the crowd ginned up. I think there was a Capitol Police force that was understaffed and overwhelmed and undertrained. I think that there were paid informants who were there that were trying to push the crowd and, and, and undercovers as well. I think that there were people that got caught up in the moment and did some bad things and stupid things. Um, and then I think that there was a contingency of people who went there because they were really angry about watching the country burn in 2020 from a bunch of uh, avocado toast eating Antifa members. And they thought, I'm going to go there and I'm going to crack their heads and give them the beating their daddy never gave them. And then we'll just, we'll leave. And those are the Oath Keepers Proud Boys. Uh, and then the largest contingency is, is what I call the Miracle on 34th Street crowd. And that was the people that went there to hear the president speak and then thought, we're going to like the letters they brought into the the judge at the end of Miracle on 34th Street to prove that Santa exists. We're going to overwhelm the Congress with just a show of demonstration. And we're going to peacefully walk through the Capitol. And that will motivate them to say, press pause on certifying the election. We need to do an actual audit of it. And then as a result of that, because there's so much to be gained from the FBI, they uh, they have been caught up in this dragnet and, and been 
raked over the coals through the process becoming the punishment and the FBI continuing this case going on. Uh, your reaction to that general assessment? There's absolutely not a single word you just said that I don't uh, agree with. I mean, everything you said is absolutely correct. Now, which proportion was the was the most significant towards lighting this fire? Because that crowd that day was, in fact, very dry tender. I mean, it was it was ready to be ignited by something, and most people, of course, were nowhere near um, capable. Look, that crowd was every single possible representation of what America looks like age group. There were children, there were babies and buggies. There were barely ambulatory, uh, you know, old age pensioners there. Everybody was there and there was, there was no way, um, under any, uh, you know, uh, concept of any, anybody's imagination that what happened was going to happen except for that handful, as you pointed out, of paid provocateurs, agitators that were placed in the crowd. Um, and we know that they were there because Michael Stinger, the uh, late Sergeant of Arms of the Senate, in his only Senate testimony, he actually said these words in his opening statement. He said, this is an opportunity for us to investigate and learn who those paid agitators, quote unquote, paid agitators were in that crowd. He was never invited again to speak before Congress <laughs> uh, for the next year and a half of his life. And he did not die under conspiratorial uh, circumstances. He was not murdered the night before he was supposed to, uh, supposed to appear before the Senate. Uh, I mean, the house select committee, he had had cancer before January 6th and he was in failing health and uh, he passed away of natural causes a year and a half after January 6th. But the point being is, is that, even in the months after that testimony, when he was still healthy enough to be interviewed, they did not want to hear from this guy because he was willing to speak the truth. And so, so he didn't get the uh, the Hillary Clinton suicided himself by shooting himself in the back of the head two times. That's uh, correct. All right. Uh, as far as being on the ground that day, you 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 described being there, wanting to do the man in the street. I know you were freezing your butt. I know I couldn't have been out there in the cold. I would have been a frozen ice cube. Um, Steve turns directly into an iguana that just uh, freezes up. He falls right off the trees like they do in Florida whenever the temperature drops below right, 50. Right. You've seen that, but yeah. 50? Friend. 60? <laughs> these, uh, these, br these brutal Central Florida winters are getting me. Oh, man. I, I Sends mean, me text messages. Send, send, send more hoodies. <laughs> I need the full-on the-suspendables Sherpa hoodie to be sent to me. I need one in large, one in XL yeah. so I can wear two. Uh, Hold on, before you before you do that, oh, Baker, I, I literally sat in a hotel in Houston, Texas. You've been to Houston, you oh, know yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. In the summer, lest anyone think otherwise. And Steve came down in a North Face jacket, like a like a windbreaker, <laughs> with an insulation layer. And That's I went great. like, and I, and I wanted to wear nothing. I wanted to be just in Ranger panties. And I'm like, are you all right, dude? And, and his lips were blue. <laughs> I actually have a video interview of him wearing a jacket, and his lips are blue. And you just go, good God, man, are you all right? Maybe you need to put some... He needed a few more almonds. He could he could swap some of that body fat uh, with you and me. Put yeah. some of that little put some of that little thickness on it. Yeah. And he would he'd give be much safer. Some, some layers, some extra layers. If I could just. <laughs> you guys, you, you guys are still dealing with the COVID weight. I've I've moved on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mine is the uh, suspended and definitely forever without pay weight. I think. Uh, yeah, it's it's depressed dad weight. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Steve, being there that day. 
Can you just give a, a general timeline of you you were at the speech, then you moved over, and then I, you you eventually went into the Capitol? Like, how long do you think you were inside? Um, just sort of a, a general timeline of you know what we're looking at, because obviously you're now a domestic terrorist who's going to have to surrender to the United States government uh, for the insurrection you committed. I, I guess we're guessing since they won't tell you the charge. What's your general timeline from January 6th that you did uh, from showing up till when you went back to the hotel? Yeah, the, the quick elevator description of that is, is that, as I said, we arrived about 930 that morning at the Washington Monument lawn. We tried to get into the little, the ellipse, but the, the crowd size was just, it was just impenetrable, could not move as we tried to uh, get closer to the staging. So we retreated back to the Washington Monument. Uh, I've written about this extensively, the production values that day for such a large event. They, they, they themselves were caught off guard. I don't know if you know this, but I think the very first permit that was uh, acquired by the uh, Park Service for the organizers of that event were only uh, got a permit for 15,000 people. And then two or three days before they, <laughs> they ramped that up to about 30,000 people. And then what ended up showing up was hundreds of thousands of people. And so they just were not prepared. The PA, the video, none of that was where it should have been. And so as a result of that, by the time it was about halfway through Trump's speech and he was an hour late getting to the stage. You know, let's just start there. He, he was supposed to uh, start speaking at 11 AM. He didn't take the stage till 1157 AM. So he was an hour late taking the stage. And, and so about halfway through his speech, we realized that the Kraken was in fact not going to be unleashed. We were aware of the other permitted events that were taking place at the Capitol. Thousands of people were already peeling off from the crowd and starting to move that way. And so my colleague and I decided to start uh, our march over there by ourselves as well and get get a, a, a jump on that early, get posted up over there somewhere where we could see what was going on there. And so we were both in pretty good shape uh, for you know our, our collective ages. And so we began. The, they just saw you uh, dancing. They know. They right, know. right, right. So we uh, and I was still I was still in my Bowie weight at the time because I had I had lost um, 60 pounds to to uh, do that Bowie tribute act because, you know, Bowie was never heavy. Uh, and, By the and, way, I don't think Ryan knew uh, much about like the way that Bowie used to present himself on stage and stuff. Some people have heard the songs, but have never seen like a Bowie. He's like, does Steve have eyeliner on? And I'm like, oh, yes, going to get a little intro to Bowie right now. <laughs> <laughs> Bowie was a character. So. um so I had, I had, uh, uh, so we, we, anyway, we walked, we marched over there very, very quickly, briskly trying to warm up for one thing. And, and, uh, when we got to the reflection pool on the West side, I, we, well, just before we arrived, we could hear the sirens arriving, not knowing that that was, you know, cars after car, after van, after van, after van of MPD officers, Met DC Metro police arriving to support whatever was already happening. We didn't know what was happening there, but it had already begun because the first breach was at 1252 on that West Terrace uh, barricade. That was the first time, you know, that was where Ray Epps leaned down and he whispered something in Ryan Samsel's ear. And execute, then, execute, execute. Yeah. <laughs> this and is then, not a drill. Yeah, and then two seconds later, he threw himself into the barricade, knocked over Officer Carolyn Edwards. She falls over. She hits her head on the concrete step. This is first blood right there. And, and then uh, of course they all ran forward to the next fencing and, and by the end, then that next fencing was collapsed and guess who was at the breach point of that? The actual breach point was none other than Ray Epps. And then, yes, that's correct. Uh, we have seen the videos 
And so then they go up to the terrace itself. The police officers retreat. They form a third line on the terrace and begin bringing more bike rack over. And that's where they established a line for about the next hour and a half. And so I arrived at the reflection pool, hearing the sirens, seeing gas. I assumed it had to be, you know, tear gas of some sort. And then I could hear flashbangs. And I looked at my colleague and I said, well, that's where we're going. And we broke out in a sprint. We ran up the steps, got to the, before the, before the crowd was of any, you know, huge size, like you're seeing in these images here right now, it had not developed to that, um, uh, capacity yet, but the, uh, uh, so I was able to get right up to the front line, turn the camera on at exactly 1:19 PM. Uh, first thing that I captured on my camera was people getting first aid on both sides of the line. And I went, uh Oh, <laughs> something's going on here. I spent the next hour filming on the West, uh, front battle lines. And then I saw with my own eyes, what I described in my FBI interview, as I described it as a stand down order. I later learned once I got access to the Capitol police radio comms, that it was a pullback. It was an actual pullback order, uh, give or take a few minutes, either side of 2 PM. And then the line collapsed. Not every one of those officers, not every one of the Capitol police officers heard that pullback on their radio because they couldn't hear the crowd noises and were just, you know, so intense outside the singing, the chanting, just the noise of the, by then there was, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of people pressing up, uh, on that line. So they couldn't possibly hear that, but the police line did finally collapse on the outer edges. As we all know, the, the, uh, the next thing that happened was that Northwest, what they called the Senate wing door was breached. Uh, the windows were busted in. Some of the riders went through those windows. They started opening up the doors when they opened up the door there at the Senate wing, then hundreds of people began to swarm throughout the Capitol and began to go and open all the other doors from the inside. We can address conspiracy theories here in a moment if we want to, but before you do that, Steve, can I can I just interject a question about because uh, I know you've dealt with a lot of Capitol Police officers in the sort of whistleblower sort of format. And I know people have basically uh, come to you and told stories. Do you get the impression that they are well trained to handle riotous crowds? Is that something that's within the U.S. Capitol Police sort of uh, capability set? The, the Capitol Police themselves have many divisions like so many other law enforcement agencies do. They have everything from what would be you know, considered a SWAT like uh, team mm -hmm. to their CDU, which is civil disturbance uh, units. Uh, that's the guys that wear the RoboCop looking, you know, hard gear. And that's the riot. That's the riot guys. Riot, the riot gear. Yeah. And then, what about the general, you know, I call them national mall cops. I'm not nearly yeah. as nice about national or about Capitol police as you are. Cause I, I yeah. didn't have a favorable dealing with them when I saw them, but do they, does a general officer who was out there, who was getting the crap beat out of them, do they have, riot training that you saw no. okay they because uh, the fbi like, would be terrible at it too by the yeah. way like an investigative agency doing crowd control is like a disaster there's right. no doubt about that and and certainly they all receive some level of probably classroom time on that but certainly when i got that when i got the line the first thing that i captured in my my camera was a line of unprepared young capitol police officers who had no gear, no protective gear whatsoever. They had no hard helmets on. They had no gas masks. They had no uh, protective gear whatsoever. And they were scared out of their minds. I saw absolute fear. And then when I ran those, my camera back and I started doing frame by frame, you could see the palpable fear in their eyes. And then as I'm watching that, I, I actually 
tried to put myself in their position and them not knowing what was coming. Yeah. And, and how can you blame them? Do you remember the movie Demolition Man? Was oh, the, uh, yes, absolutely. So the, 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 as you were describing that, that scene in which I think I've actually played on the show before. Actually, I know I've shown it, but it's like a guy walks up. He's a police officer. He's got the uniform. He looks the part, but he has no experience in this. He's never had any training. And he looks into his comp set and he said, you know, maniac is assaulting, uh, you know, computer terminal advise. And it goes <laughs> firmly tell maniac to put the, you know, put his hands on the ground. And, and it goes like maniac refused and threw an insult, you know, and says, you know, add or else at the end of the next command, you know, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And like you get the idea that they're just like. Holy crap, they probably had a PowerPoint presentation that said, firmly put your hand up and say, stop, citizen, do not approach me, or some some horrible thing like that. Kyle, we heard this on United States Capitol Police radio comms, okay? This actually happened. This is the famous scene where Lieutenant Tart Johnson, he had heard a distress call. There was, in fact, a distress call from a unit of our a, a platoon of officers who considered themselves to be in a dangerous situation. They put out a distress call. The um, uh, operational command, you know, operator up in the command center asked them what they needed, basically finally told them that we have FBI and ATF tactical units in the building. We'll try and see if we can send them your way and, and help you get out of this situation that you're in. And so immediately, Tart Johnson took uh, the, the, the comms and he said, where are you? And he, then he ordered the FBI and uh, ATF to meet him at the uh, South Barricade there. And then he, from there, he would lead them to where these distressed officers were. But in the interim, Tarek went on the radio, spoke directly to the officer who called this in. His call sign was motor 13. All right. And, and so this is a motor, this is a, you know, so this, this is, this is a motorcycle cop, right? He's inside the building doing stuff. He has no idea what he's doing. Right. All right. That's, so, that's literally dressed the same way as the, uh, as the people yeah. from, from, uh, from demolition band. They were exactly. all motor cops, by the way, they had exactly. those motorcycle jackals. That's exactly. such a good so he call. He calls in this distress call and Tarek Johnson, Lieutenant Tarek Johnson says to him over the air, he says, just be nice to them. Tell them that you're on their side. You know, he's, he's trying to coach them through cause he'd been moved. Johnson had been moving through the crowd freely for, you know, two hours at this point. Mm -hmm. And, and so, and so he just be nice to them they'll let you out. And the guy goes, no, we've already, we've already tried that. This is an officer safety situation. We're not moving until we get help. And so then Tark executed his, what became the famous um, uh, recruiting of two oath keepers to help him go uh, get those 16 officers out of whatever danger that they perceived themselves to be in. But these guys, they'll, they'll think about this. These guys that they extracted from the building, from inside the building, I have now seen the videos they were only in a place by the time they exited, they were surrounded about by about 50 other uniformed officers, but not in hard gear, but those hard gear guys wanted the hell out of that building. So you, you have to see the body language. And we are, we are going to show this. This is part of what we have harvested from capital CCTV. They wanted out of there so bad that when Tark and those two oath keepers came up and got the door open on the East side, cause they had already successfully closed it. The, the police had, but when they got them to reopen the door, let them in those hard units wanted out. They wanted out bad. And they actually left a situation where it was just them and cops. And they exited into a crowd of thousands of protesters. This makes no sense to me whatsoever. When you look at it from both sides, from cameras, from both sides of the, uh, of that doorway. And it's something I'm going to figure out. And I am doing interviews right now to figure that out. But, um, 
but this was very much like that demolition man. It, it was, it was just, you know, you, the officers were calling in, what do we do? And then you start hearing, well, do this, do this, do this, do this, respond in this way. Approach and, maniac and in yeah. a firm tone of voice say, <laughs> we're on your side. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And the sad so, thing is that people have gotten so locked up at that point that they, they had no training to fall back on. That's the real scary thing. I think for, for anybody who's been in law enforcement. But if you go back to the West Terrace, when I, as I was talking about earlier, when I tried to put myself in the position and in the mindset, and 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 so you you asked me this last time, Kyle, you said, you know, how, you know, where where are these skills coming from, or or something of that nature, as far as my uh, whatever investigative abilities that I have and instincts yeah, that I have, you, yeah, go ahead and touch. and. and my, you know, my father was a private investigator for many years and very accomplished in that way. Uh, he actually was able to find many miss his specialty was missing persons. And he was able to find and locate uh, missing persons that the FBI had basically gone cold on, had, had, had quit looking for. And, and, um, but my dad had what I would call that profiler ability that, you know, that thing that some people have is just a gift. And, and it's, it's a thing that can't be trained. I don't know if the, I don't know if in, you know, you guys former agency, if that was something that anybody ever tried to train you on. But the point being is, is he could do that when he was looking for somebody, my dad could lock himself in his office, whether it was for three days or just three hours. And this was way before the internet. He, he didn't have an internet to use to click and search and do that sort of thing. But when my dad exited that office, he knew where that person was and probably had already had them on the phone. That person that had not been found in months or years or whatever the case may be. Have you ever seen the movie uh, zero effect? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm doing Steve friends movie references since uh, that's an American <laughs> radicals thing. You guys don't know this, but uh, if you watch, if you watch the Amrad pod, you know that there's movie references that are required. And so there's a movie called zero effect. Was your dad basically Daryl zero? Did he, uh, was he without the craziness? Could he literally just sit and kind of work his way through the the mental thing? Which was, by the way, that was based on Sherlock Holmes. So yeah, it makes sense that that would be the world's yeah. greatest investigative part, mind type thing. Part of that is 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 once what he would do is he would he would get the entire bio in the on, on the individual from his family, from what the police files were, the FBI files, whatever the case may be. He would get the entire profile on that individual. Just you know, basic investigative work. You got to you know, you got your you got your folder. Your, your, and, and then he would put himself into the mindset of that person and he would descend into whatever he had to descend into, to become, uh, what would this person do? Where would this person go? Where might he have uh, hidden himself? Where might he have retreated? Who might be helping him? Who might be hiding him? All of these things. And, and lo and behold, like I said, whether it was three hours or three days, when he came out of office, out of his office, he knew where that person was. And, and so I'm not saying that I have anything close to the extent of that gift that my dad had, but when I started looking at these videos of the Capitol police, it was, you know, it's been very easy to impugn them for all the reasons that we know, as we said, you know, glorified mall cops, uh, glorified uh, security guards, um, you know, basically uh, in some cases glorified tour guides because they're standing around on their post and somebody comes you know, all day long, uh, excuse me, sir, where's the restroom? And they spend their, you know, 20 years of their career pointing where the men's room. I, I don't say it to be mean, but they, they really are. They're national mall cops. They're on the national mall, which you experienced on that day. And, um, and they're cops in sort of name only in a lot of ways. And they don't, they certainly don't 
have the problems at the frequency or at the level that the DC Metro cops have to deal with, because those are the street brawlers They're out there. They're having to deal with these riots, you know, at, at, all over the city. Yeah. Like almost daily DC Metro PD. If you've ever seen the DC Metro riot squad, I'm sure you've seen them, but those guys are all, they look like they came, you know, they, they didn't make it in the NFL. They failed out of the column, uh, the combine, but they're big enough to be, right. you know, they could have been on a D line somewhere. And then you get out there. And when you see like a bunch of like little girls with purple hair, like yelling at them and stuff, and they've got the Spartan shield and the, the four foot or the six foot baton. And you just go like, those dudes are here to fight. Like they look like they're probably good at it too. I don't, and they have body that covers like their joints <laughs> it's not it doesn't look like a thing where you're like yeah i think i'm gonna go tangle with that guy and see how it comes out it's not gonna be good but right. but the the average cop is like standing around there in a uniform that's made of polyester and probably has fake buttons and zips up and all the things that you know kind of mall copy things go and just yeah see we know but we know from so many testimonials not only whistleblowers not only unnamed sources but in trial testimonies that these frontline cops what they call their first responders unit uh, units, they had no idea what was coming their way that day. And they, they got no morning briefings, by the way. And this is another big lie that officer Harry Dunn told in his book. This is, this is phenomenal. We cannot wait to show I'm In fact, I'm, I'm giving everybody, you're getting, you're getting a, um, you're, sneak, you're getting sneak a peek. breaking. What's that? A little sneak peek. Yeah. I was going to have yeah, Ryan bring up our, our article number one that you sent over here. Yeah. This is the analysis showing, did he, did he perjure himself? You can throw this up a column folks. You should go look to yeah, so so uh, Officer Harry Dunn, who we've already done a couple of uh, videos on, uh, we're 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 about to start rolling out a two-part series on a day in the life of Officer Dunn uh, as a, a Capitol Police officer on January sixth, and so he has not only congressional testimony, trial testimonies, but obviously his book came out in October as well. So we have everything that he said that he did that day, and we're going to show you that every single thing that he said that did that he did that day was a lie. By the video evidence, not by my opinion, not by what I think or what, you know, I want to, because I, I I didn't set out to impugn this man, but he got me started on this investigation because I knew that he was lying in the, in the Oath Keepers trial. And so the um, uh, one thing that is absolutely incredible is in his book, he specifically talks about how he arrived at the Capitol at 630 that morning, very detailed, very specific, specific. And then at uh, roughly seven o'clock, they begin gathering for their morning roll call briefing. And that the, and he says that this was a very unusual morning. Something was up because they usually are all separate and they have their little small meetings with their different uh, platoons and units and that sort of thing. But instead, they had a large gathering in the big theater where, and, and again, Kyle, you, you just, you cannot believe how specific this is. So they all gathered in this huge theater where the people that visit the cap, you know, tourists, where they visit, where they get their kind of orientation and they're shown a film reel about the history of the Capitol, that sort of thing, before they take the tour. And it's a big theater. And so they had all the cops in that theater that morning for this important um, uh, uh, briefing, roll call briefing. And that they were going to need to go get their helmets and all these other things. And they're all kind of looking at each other like, oh, my gosh, you know, what's going to happen today? And he saw, he talked about how unusual that was. And in his 13 years of being uh, with the Capitol Police, that, 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 that level of preparedness had never happened before. He's saying this in his book. Mm -hmm. So 
uh, my second time in the Capitol CCTV viewing room as we're kind of, I'd already harvested most of the day in the life of Harry Dunn at this point on my own, but now I had two blaze analysts with me and we were going through that and we started cleaning up around the edges. And so I, I, I coached one of the analysts to go and start looking at his testimonial early in the day, instead of from those hours from one to three, you know, run to five when all the, you know, the, the ruckus was going on. And so it just so happens that that theater that he describes in his book has two CCTV cameras inside that theater. Of course it does. How many cops do you think gathered in that theater that morning? It's supposed to be all of them, right? It's supposed to be all of them. Yeah. So probably almost none of them. How about zero? Yeah. The people who are cleaning it, maybe <laughs> the cleaning so I, made, I made, I made one of my analysts watch that video, those two cameras for, you know, a couple of hours he watched it from 6.30 in the morning all the way till past 9 o'clock in the morning on January 6th. Then watched all of the cameras in the exterior hallways. And then there's two more small theaters. So just in case, you know, Dunn's brain was Swiss cheese from all the, you know, the events of the day that he got the theater wrong. So we watched the hallways on the outside of those other two. And we didn't see a single cop in that area until a hard unit walks by with their duffel bags full of, full of gear at about 930. And they walk through past one of the hallway cameras. There was no meeting. And he, this is, this is the level of deception that these guys are willing to execute and willing to tell about their experiences on January 6th when we have now access to the truth in the video itself. Yeah. Steve, you got done that day, and then I know I've heard you talk about this before, where you, you kind of went back to your hotel room and started looking at your footage and and realized that the narrative that was immediately and instantly being put out uh, on mainstream media was just not what you were seeing, and that was sort of what tickled your interest into digging into this. How quickly after January 6th were you actually in communication with the FBI? It took them six months before they ever reached out to me. Uh, you know, I, I know of other independent journalists who trying to get ahead of this themselves, they called the FBI and offered their footage and said, Hey, if you, you know, I was there, I got, got all this footage in case you need it for your investigation. So I'm happy to provide that for you. Uh, I didn't do that. I, I went and actually socked myself away, uh, for five days and did frame by frame analysis of my own video and then started writing my story. I published my first story, what I saw on January 6th on the 13th. And that was a 9,500 word screed, but it was just basically what I saw that day. No, no, complicated analysis. I saved that for about six weeks later when I put out my second um, uh, story, which was entitled Who Was Up the Chain on January 6th? Because by then I had already been doing interviews and be, had begun doing and, and un uncovering the kinds of things that I realized there was something more going on here that day than just a spontaneous riot. And so um, uh, I didn't get a call from the FBI until July of 21. And uh, it was agent, special agent Garrett Doss. He calls me uh, about 10 o'clock one morning. He introduces himself and he says, hey, uh, this is FBI. And the first thing I said to him, is, I said, hey, what took you so long? And he laughed. And then he said, look, uh, we see that you're going to be speaking at an event uh, in Reston, Virginia, you know, just outside of D.C. tomorrow night. And was just wondering if you were going to be in town a little earlier in the day and you could sit down with a couple of our guys and, you know, 
talk about your experiences on January 6th. And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I am going to uh, be in town early. I said, but unfortunately my attorney won't be able to be there. Uh, yeah. Oh, I love it. Love it. And, That's, yeah. I mean, I, you would think your, your naivete at that point uh, maybe would have uh, convinced you that they were an objective force for good, but uh, I'm glad that the, the Ron Paulite in you said that that was <laughs> a warning sign. <laughs> well, that it, it, look, I, I've had, I've had plenty of, um, of, uh, training in that regard, you know, being, being a libertarian and, uh, we're probably a little bit more, um, in tune with how to handle those situations than most Americans are. But the point is, is how that many one, pieces had you written up to that in those six months after do you, oh. I mean, I imagine they probably got you on geofence or something like that, but maybe, maybe you're on the radar because you had been writing about it and putting footage out there. How many pieces do you think you'd actually author? I, I, I don't know how many pieces I had authored. It, it had to be in the dozens by then, but also then there was just the, um, at, at that time I was primarily just doing my blog as well as most of my work was on, on Facebook, my daily communication. This was when, you know, of course, Facebook was throttling the hell out of me at that time and it was diminishing and diminishing and I was just getting worse and worse and worse there. I had not even, I, I, I was a Twitter, I had a Twitter account, but I was never used Twitter, uh, as a, as a writer or putting that out there. I was just a read, I just had a read only account, you know, basically I, I had no followers. I had, I just used Twitter to go check on what people, whatever other people were saying. I, I was a, a Facebook guy. And so, um, that's where I built most of my following. All right. And, and your, so, your actual first interaction though, was with the Raleigh office. I know there was some yeah. problems with them recording and you wanted to record, but ultimately you, you let them record it. Uh, and that was in still the six months or was it actually further beyond that? It was further beyond that. As a matter of fact, as soon as I said to him that, you know, my, my attorney would unfortunately not be able to be there. He was like, Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem. We'll schedule that. And, and to look, I, I will, I will tell you, unlike other J six, uh, defendants or, uh, targets, uh, of the FBI and the department of justice, they have in fact been very, very cooperative in terms of scheduling for our various, you know, meetups, uh, and my, with my schedule, my travel, they, you know, my travel schedule and my band schedule at the time and all of that, they, they, they worked around that. And so I turned, I gave them my attorney's phone number. I got, uh, agent Doss's phone number, gave that to my attorney and I just turned it over to them. And they, you know, from that point forward, they were doing the communicating. And so the first, uh, interview was set up in August of 21. And when my attorney and I arrived at the office, uh, here in Raleigh, the, um, the, the guys had a, uh, the two agents, they introduced themselves, Dawson Noyes. They had to sit in the lobby. They said, we've got a problem. We may not be able to do this interview today. And I'm, I'm like, well, what is that all about? I had no idea. And so, uh, they said, we're, we're going to go back in the back. We, we're, we're on a phone call. We'll be back out and then we'll let you know what's, what's going on. We'll be back in about 10 minutes. So I we sat, sat down on the sofa there in the lobby with my, uh, my attorney. And I looked over at him. I said, what's this all about? I said, is there something, is, I said, if, is there another nine 11 going on in the world somewhere that we missed? No, just talking know? to a journalist. What's that? Just talking to a journalist requires extra permission. It's well, supposed to. That's, that's exactly what it was. And so my attorney looks over at me and he goes, no, this is about you. And I went, about me. I, how did you get that from there? You know what they said? He goes, no, it's about you. Uh, okay. So about a half hour later, they emerged from the back locked, you know, concealed rooms, uh, and, uh, they, they come out and said, uh, yeah, uh, you know, uh, we're sorry, but we're, we're, we're going to have to reschedule this for another date. Turns out because of your status as a 
you know, member of the press, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we, we can't do this without. We can only do this without a search warrant at 6 a.m. That's the only way that we're able to do this, Steve. <laughs> yeah, right. So there, there's that. Let me, um, let me, let me just kind of grab this and, and, and hold on for a second. First of all, we got a lot of people joining us that look like a new audience. So thanks for joining us, guys. We're talking to Steve Baker, who is the pragmatic constitutionalist. It's TP4, the number four, USA, TP4. USA on Twitter. TPC for TPC. I'm sorry, I missed one. TPC for USA. You can find him on Truth, and you can find him on Twitter. And uh, he was just recently promoted by the Blaze to be a full time independent journalist for them, or a full time uh, investigative journalist rather, and has stepped up from his contributor position. So we're really proud that he's done that. We're happy that he's here talking to us about it. That was just released this morning. We're talking January six stuff. His on the ground experience of it. We're talking about how the FBI decided to kind of try to uh, squeak him a little bit and get some uh, voluntary interviews, and that didn't go as well as they hoped. And uh, if you guys are watching us, we are trending right now up on the podcast list on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. So please give us a thumbs up. If you're watching this on the replay, you're on the AMRAD pod. Make sure you give that a thumbs up as well. You guys do not uh, let my boys sit in the lurch. And I'm joined by Garrett O'Boyle, who's having um, a, a grouchy baby in the background. So we're having a little bit more mic muting than normal. Uh, and Steve Friend, who is uh, these are both my fellow FBI whistleblowers. And we're talking to Steve Baker, who is now uh, another bee in the bonnet of the FBI, my ex-girlfriend who is kind of a psycho ex-girlfriend of of uh, kind of exes to have in the world. She doesn't behave very appropriately and has been getting more and more agitated, uh, particularly the fact that she offered to have you surrender, I guess, last week. Is that right? Is it last week or this week? Was it this week? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. If we're talking about the ex-girlfriend that I think you're talking about. Uh, yes, that that they try. Her name is Bewey. I think her name is Bewey. <laughs> That's what we call her. Yeah, B-U-I-E. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and uh yeah, so you fast forward from that first interview that I that got um, uh, aborted in August of 21. Then this went all the way up to the U.S. Attorney's Office because, lo and behold, there's a statute uh, with regards to interviewing a journalist, and they had to get permission from the United States uh, U.S. Uh, U.S. Attorney's o General's Office. And once that was rescheduled, and there was a negotiation, there was an it was an actually a negotiated interview. There was a proffer agreement. Uh, basically, the terms by which I was interviewed is that nothing that I said in the interview could be used against me should they ever try to take me to court or, or try to press charges against me. Um, unless there's something I said in that interview in which I perjured myself. Which I, Are you I, familiar with the, the, the concept of parallel construction at all? No. Mm -mm. Um, either you boys want to jump in on that, Steve or Garrett, you want to discuss, maybe Garrett, you want to talk about what parallel construction looks like? Oh, you can't do it. Audio's cut. I'll jump in. Steve, take it. I mean, it's it's sort of like where you, you know the outcome already to begin with, yeah. and they're going to build the case to, to get the answers in another way um, so that they can work around that proper process and say, well, we didn't use the information that you gave us against yeah. us, but you know, we, we were able to get it and ascertain it through different sources. Ergo, we can still bring those charges. In. Yeah, just a short version of it, Baker. If, if we were to do it, you tell me like, yeah, I saw this thing and I did this thing and this is what was going on. And they go, okay, we're not going to use it against you. Then they go find the person in the room who was there and they go, yeah, I saw Steve and he was in this place and he did this thing. And they go, yeah, we had an independent source tell us that you did right. this thing and that's why we're going to come after you. It's it's a dirty trick. It yeah. can be done in the intelligence sphere as well. You can use national security tools that are classified. And rather than declassify them, I go and I threaten your buddy and I go, look, I'd really hate to have to prosecute you. And I know you did this stuff. Uh, would you like to be my informant and tell me about this thing that uh, Baker did? And they go like, oh, yeah, I do. I don't want to I don't want to deal with that problem. And so then they go and they build it on source reporting instead of using a classified technique. Right. It's it's an ugly ability to do that. And I'm guessing you're 
going to find out pretty soon what that looks like on their end. Yeah, well, it's it's actually, uh, I wouldn't have known what you called it in the Bureau, but um, uh, it's actually exactly the same thing that I did with Harry Dunn is because he met with me for four hours privately, just me and him. And it was an off the record. I have never said a word about what he told me on the record uh, in the press or any of these interviews or podcasts. Uh, I have, I have uh, kept my word in that regard, but obviously I used very much of what he told me to continue uh, my investigation. Yeah. And somebody tells you where the body's buried. You can go find somebody else to point you on the map where it is too. And exactly. you go, is this where the body's buried? I already know where it is. And they go, well, yeah, that's where, how do you know? Oh, so projecting you just told out because you just told me <laughs> projecting out the that we, you're anticipating because I know the FBI said like well you just have to surrender and find out what we're going to charge you with. Um, I know we've talked about it that they're they're uh, intimating that you apparently had better intelligence than the entire FBI did and knew that a quote unquote insurrection was going to happen and ergo traveled across state lines in order to record it so that you could profit off of it, but. Um, as ridiculous as that is, I still think that the, I think standing on the bench, uh, you alluded to that, that was something that really, they got very interested in when you described that to them. Um, is yeah. that still on the table? Because I think that might be my favorite federal charge that's ever been lobbied out there. Lobbied out. Yeah. I mean, who, who knew that if you actually stand on a park bench in a, you know, federal, uh, park to take a photo of an elk walking by <laughs> or something like that to get a better vantage point. That's actually a federal crime. I know that now because I've read the statute because when I was first threatened with pro prosecution back in November of 21, they uh, told me, uh, they actually gave my attorney two of the actual statutes in an email. So I have this email. I have it. It's, this is not exaggeration. The first one was, is that they were actually going to charge me with property damage. And I'm thinking to myself, property damage. I didn't break a window. I didn't break. Listen, a this is why we joined the FBI. I actually feel shorted that I never got to charge anybody who was standing on a park bench. Yeah. But that's why I actually we're joined when tearing I had the, the tearing the tag off the pillow. Like I wanted that one. See, that's what, that's what we all signed up to really do. Uh, everything else was secondary and we got let down. And if they have, if they have gone back, you know, through NSA, um, uh, resources or whatever, they're going to learn how many tags I have torn off the pillow. And, and <laughs> so here's I, the thing, you hear on, that second, unlike, unlike, yeah, cause we got, we got our FBI listeners. Well, um, other than, you know, some people just take the tag and they throw it away. I know that you're the kind of guy that you actually put them in your file and you have, you have like a baseball card binder of all the tags. You're talking Including about Steve friend, right? Not, not me. I, I'm yeah. Not, yeah. I'm not that organized. That, you wouldn't be that organized. No, That's no, a Steve no. friend move. People don't know he has an accounting degree. That's <laughs> that's there you go. So, you know, it's it, <laughs> stealth it was, accountants. It was, it was very interesting because in my interview, which finally took place in October of 21, the uh, one of the things that when we I was describing my path through the day and uh, all of that is I actually said the words I said, yeah. And at one point we were, you know, I was in the crypt or whatever. And I don't even remember if I remembered what room I was in at the time, but in my recounting to uh, the, the two agents there, but I said, I, you know, at one point I got up on a bench so I could get above the crowd and I could, you know, video what they were doing. And agent Noyes goes, you, he did. He, he went, you stood on a bench. I said, yeah. And immediately, this guy. Right. We, we, we've been briefed on the bench situation. Uh, I, could you tell us more about that? I shit you not. I mean, he immediately got right on the pad. And I'm, I look, you know, I'm like looking over at my. T tell me you thing. laughed at that when that happened, because there's something really awful about the idea that an FBI agent was excited about you standing on a bench. Like, I, I it, it hurts my heart that that's the case. I, I couldn't laugh at it. I just, I just went like, look at my attorney. You know, 
Look, GOB and I could probably t talk about this. Like, being a street cop, like you had those like obscure charges in your back pocket that you would use to de-escalate a situation or something like that, and you just wait for the person to say the thing you needed to because they didn't know it was a law. Like my thing was always like in, in it was Georgia, right? So it's like if you uh, use a profanity in the presence of a lady, then I can charge you with a city <laughs> ordinance violation, and I would do that for that. By the way, but that sounds like something like this guy Noyes has researched, and it was like. Uh, can't wait to throw that charge down because he's so bought in on the January 6th thing. He was like excited for that. Let me tell you what this really is. Show me the man. I'll show you the crime. Yeah. That's what this really is. Oh, like a police state. Yeah. yeah. Like a secret police, which we keep, we keep hammering home on this stuff. How gross is that? Yeah. Right. These people, it's pathetic, man. They're, they're pathetic excuses for law enforcement officers and in, in what we once called the land of the free. It's really disheartening disappointing angering saddening to to know that there's fbi agents of all people who are out there oh you stood on a park bench gotcha okay. I, I yep federal federal offense like do, do you have the statute number for that handy because i'm like what where would this even be you know like but imagine this guys because Three of us have done this job. Steve, you've been in there. Uh, you know, Baker, you've been in there and actually had someone accuse you of it. But imagine saying, yeah, I stood up on a bench to get a better vantage and someone thinking, gotcha, bitch. Like that was the thought going through this guy's head. And he's like jotting it down. He's like, now we got him. We just got to get a video of it so we could substantiate it. Right. And, and they know roughly where you said you were and roughly what time it was. So they can go back and they can parallel construct that to be like that to be the gotcha moment. It's so nauseating. Like the gotchas that I wanted to be was like, yeah, I admitted to uh, burning down that entire that entire national forest uh, on an Indian reservation or like, yeah, uh, I, I defrauded that guy of ten yeah. million dollars. Like that's the gotcha that I thought we were going into. Right. You know, I want to ask these for our for our FBI agent friends who are listening. Yeah. Will you go to the park bench that Mr. Baker stood on and scrape all of the gum? off from the bottom of the bench and and send it to the lab and get all the DNA back and then charge all those people for property damage too. I mean, it's just absolutely pathetic. Yeah. It's lawfare at its finest. Like what can we do? What can we find to just get you just to get you it, it it's, we've talked about this before, how the FBI, the justice department, uh, the ministry of, of justice, as I like to call them, they're not supposed to be overly concerned with the outcome. They are supposed to be concerned with, the truth and with justice and oh you stood on a park bench mm -hmm. what damage is caused there and then they're going to sling that charge like man it's just it's pathetic it's it's pathetic excuse for law enforcement and, and they, they're not worth the cost of the tin of the badge that they wear on their hip and, and, and this and is the, the damocles sword they put over your head now for <laughs> almost three years where you're or two and a half years where they're you're waiting because they keep saying well we're going to come for you next week or then we're going to wait for a year and a half and then say well it's imminent you're going to be charged like how many hours of sleep has steve baker lost for that that is a in itself making the process the punishment and then this most recent notification that you got where it's like well we need you to surrender um next week on Tuesday. And then after hours, uh, we're going to call your lawyer. So you can't call back for clarification from us. Um, we can't give you what the charge is going to be, but you don't have to surrender um, till after Christmas. And this will be for your benefit. We don't want to ruin your Christmas when in effect, you know, it's just this jerk noise who wanted to uh, be off for Christmas. So he, uh, he facilitated that delay uh, because again, you're again, these, uh, this domestic terrorist, obviously, cause you stood on a park bench and we need to bring the, uh, bring the hammer down on you from the United States government 
But uh, as a terrorist, we're going to let you travel around for several more weeks, even though we likely have a warrant in hand and haven't entered it into a system. I mean, we need to cover down on some of this stuff because I, I, I'll put it out there right now. I think Steve Baker should self-surrender on Christmas Day <laughs> so he can ruin Craig Noyes's Christmas and force him to come to work. I'll second that. I, I, I'll, I'll, all in favor? I. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. So, since, uh, since New Year's already, works too. Just saying. Since I've already booked an Airbnb with my children out of town for that for that day. Uh, how about, works. Can we do it New Year's Day? Yeah, yeah you can do yes. it any holiday. All yes, federal holidays holiday. are in play. Right, I'll fly out to film it. Hey, well, they're Steve. All, they're all here. I mean, they're all listening right now. And um, you know, I actually, I actually, uh, just a week ago, uh, after the Thursday uh, uh, call that I got from my attorney. Uh, when he received a call from Agent Noyes that I was going to have to self-surrender, um, uh, that uh, immediately I got an encrypted message from my source at DOJ in Washington who told me in a very, <laughs> very cryptid way, he told me, he said, look, delete these apps from your phone right now. Uh, you are being listened to. You're being watched. And, of course, this this production that we're on here right now. I announced that I invited them here today. So I sent my agent a text last night and invited guys. agent Noyes to, to be a part of this show today. I, if he, uh, if he would allow me to, I'd send him the, um, uh, the sign in the login and you know, maybe we could interview him, but, uh, he can't, do we that. could send him a link. Yeah. Just put, uh, put your handle in the, in the uh, comments. We'll, we'll send you a yeah, link. No, we, we could send him a link, but he couldn't talk to me because I'm represented, you know, so, no, but he can he can hang out here and wave. Yeah, yeah. But the 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 point being is is that <laughs> I'm I'm uh, I'm being watched. I'm being listened. I mean th that's that's. Do you want? Will you talk about the Rico? Because I, I, we're going to get further into some of the what that what it feels like to be watched. Which I like. You and I had a private chat the other day, and 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 the the weight of that is more than most people can can appreciate. There's a couple of J six type folks in the in the chat and, and families of J sixers, so they know what we're talking about. And I know that Garrett and I and Steve have a sense of it in a, in a different way, like, you know, the, what it means to wake up in the morning. But the Rico allegation against you was one of my favorites that when we first spoke, I remember you saying that and me going like, that was a WTF moment in my head. Like the question marks came right out of the top of my head right. and people could probably see them. They, they said they were going to use a Rico statute to prosecute you. Yeah. And this was initially. another one of those moments in my original, you know, FBI interview that I had to like, look at my attorney and go, what? Because they asked me, they said, um, so how much money have you made off of uh, licensing, selling your videos? And I looked, I looked at my attorney. I said, do I have to answer that question? He said, no. And I go, doesn't matter. And they go, and, and, and Noyes went, oh, come on, you know, this round figure or whatever. It's just us girls. I like that one. I like the right, just right. us girls technique. Right, right, right. You're all, you all have your How hair and you your curlers. How you down there, Steve? <laughs> it's, it, it, it's a root beer float. We're watching movies. And uh, just between us girls, how much money did you make for your video? You know, so, just something that I might be able me, to use to criminally prosecute throw, you. Let me just throw this out there to you guys. Um, imagine that HBO, I'm talking about the HBO, and their big documentary. They were the first one to come out with a, a really significant documentary on January 6th. I think it came, I think it aired in November of 21. And HBO contacted me directly to license my videos. And they wanted, they identified 12 different clips that they wanted from my camera. Okay. And they ended up using, I think, four of them. 
uh, in the final production, final edit cut of the of the documentary. What would you think, just not having been involved in anything like that before, how much do you think the big HBO would pay me for 12 clips? How many total seconds of video? See, now you see, you know better. You already know a little bit about this. It's less than a minute. I mean, because we're talking about three seconds, six second clips, that that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I have a, an instinct on it. I don't know, but twelve, fifteen hundred dollars something like that. 10K. Anybody? I was going to say a thousand. $100 million. There's good. Okay, so we've got the Price is Right thing going on right now. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, uh, you, you both went over. So, I mean, you all went over. Uh, it's uh, $700. Wow, you didn't even get Cash Patel money. No, oh, no, no. I didn't. I didn't get John Sullivan money. I didn't get ninety thousand dollars for the you know my video of the shooting of Ashley Babbitt. Um, but the the point being is that is it's just not there's that's a that's an actual industry standard rate. You get you got it's a thousand dollars a minute. And when they get you know a dozen three second clips, it doesn't even add up to a minute. So yeah. you know you total it up and that's what it is. And so nobody's getting rich off of that unless you captured a moment like the, the shooting of, of Ashley Babbitt and even, you know, $90,000 is not getting rich money. Well, for perspective, the U S attorney's offices won't take fraud cases if they're under $1 million. <laughs> that, that's really the key that, and I'm glad Steve jumped in that? on it first, but, yeah. but Garrett, you were in a different field office. We all saw different field offices. What's the number that uh, your United States attorney would have drawn the line at for like, we're not going to deal with this amount of money. Yeah, I think it had to be at least a million because we had some that, if I remember right, there was like a fraud that came in. It was like over half a million. And they're like, yeah, AUSA probably won't take that. And we sat, you and I sat on uh, Tim Pool's show and talked about it. And he talked about a million dollar documented fraud and they didn't pick it up because he's in the D.C. area and they're they're closer to five million. Mm hmm. So it, it depends on the jurisdiction. I've I've had fraud cases that uh, you know we looked at and, and there was nothing we were going to do, and it was fifty grand, and you know that was a lot of money for a small business that yeah. runs out of it. Seven hundred dollars almost never, uh, regardless of what the Biden administration would have you believe, is going to make or break your life. Probably there's very few people that seven hundred dollars is going to be the difference between, particularly if you actually like are a regular guy who has cameras. I'm guessing your camera was more than $700 if you were using a decent camera. Well, if you have a Venmo account and you earn more than $600 now in your Venmo account, you know, you're you're a target of the federal government. So That's right. That's how we that's how we take down the billionaires though, Mr. Baker. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's what they say. Yeah. <laughs> Cuz they're all using Venmo to throw a bunch of money back and forth. <laughs> no, what they're really interested in is like TikTok girls and uh and what whoever's on Twitch like in the bathtub. But um luckily we're in a very serious country at a very serious time. So Rico charges. That was that's where we were yeah. going with this. So 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 he's he's asking me these questions about and and in in reality, by November of twenty one, I had made give or take a hundred bucks either side of fifteen hundred dollars total from the licensing of my videos. Okay, it's a, it's a little bit more than that two years later, but barely a little bit more than that. Mm -hmm. And and the uh, I mean again feverishly notes on this. He's he's writing this down. So when we finally get the email from uh, U.S. Attorney Anita Eve out of Philadelphia, or when I say my, my attorney did, and she, she said in her November 17th email to my attorney that his client, me, was going to be charged within the week, then she included the two statutes under which they expected to charge me. Now, originally, Agent Noyes and Agent Doss told me that after the interview that should anything happen. It's not, it was not in their hands, but if, if the, if the department of justice does in fact 
decide to file charges against you, it's probably just going to be the four basic misdemeanors that everybody else is getting charged with. You know, the glorified trespassing charge, the parading charge, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and so when we get the two statutes by which they were going to charge me, uh, the property destruction for having stand on, stood on the bench, the other one was the most confounding one because as soon as you go to that federal statute, the title of it is interstate racketeering. Mob laws. Um, and, I, and of course, as soon, and this is what my attorney said. He, he goes, he goes, I'm reading this and I'm like, I, I can't wrap my head around this, but he said, I'm telling you, it's the interstate racketeering statute. And I went, what in the hell are they talking about? And he goes, before we even, you know, tr get too deep into trying to figure this out, let me call her. And so he gets either on the phone or had an email exchange and she said, no, yes, that's, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Your attorney couldn't wrap their head around it because no person with a reasonable brain can wrap their head around it. And this just goes again. Like I think of uh, when I was a brand new law enforcement officer, I was a cop before I was an FBI agent. My police chief used to always say, you don't have to be right. You just have to be reasonable. And that has always stood with me. And it should for anybody in law, it should for any human who just lives, like just be reasonable. You don't have to be in law enforcement. It should be a bedrock principle of law enforcement, but that's why your attorney couldn't grasp that, you know, get their mind around it because it's completely unreasonable, just like the standing on the park bench one. And, you know, as we talk and listen to you today, I'm thinking of these agents who were interviewing you and I'm thinking of the type of people I've encountered in law enforcement. And I just wonder what your takeaway is. Are these true believers? Are these the types who don't care? They just are doing what they can to rise through the ranks? Or are they the type who just want to keep their boss off their back and know that having a case, some casework is a good way to do that? Um, a, a mix of some of those? Because oftentimes, I think of even just as an agent in Wichita where I was, even my boss would say, like, we're not... We're not playing this game. We're not doing this charade with all of these J6 cases. Like, yeah, if we get a lead, we will do our due diligence to run it to ground. But it, it just seems like it's just completely overboard, especially with your case. You're a journalist. You didn't enter anything. You didn't actually damage any property. And now it's interstate racketeering. Like, it, I just I have a hard time understanding who these people are these agents these law enforcement officers who swore an oath to the constitution i just i just don't get how they can go on doing this type of thing i, I will tell you if uh, i i gave a quick read on the body language of these two agents when i sat down with them for two hours and this was my read um i felt like that agent doss did not want to be there i felt like he was embarrassed by the process uh agent and he Floyd, should be so that's that's good to hear but he needs to he needs to step up then yeah. And, and, or walk away. Like, sorry. Yeah. I just, I'm no, this stuff just gets me really I'm, fired I, up. The best part about this, uh, Baker is watching, uh, Garrett just stew over there. This is Garrett's nature. He's kind of brooding in that way. He's, I, like I think it. he's got a long fuse, but it's always burning kind of thing. I, I feel very similarly, but, um, we're just watching that. Like, I know how frustrated it is because these are our former colleagues. These are people that we theoretically would have trusted our life with. And you can't even trust them to do the right thing in something small like saying, I'm not going to investigate this. By the way, some people did do the right thing. A small number of people just said, this is bullshit. And I'm, I'm calling what it is. And the answer is you might lose your supervisory position. You might get put on a penalty box. Like they didn't lose their jobs even.
They didn't even lose their paycheck over it, mm. you know? And so for them to just to go along with it, that they're going to charge Rico. And if you'll permit me one little kind of a moment of editorial, because this actually ties my entire week of shows together. For those of you guys who have not seen, we talked to Douglas Mackey. You're familiar with this case, obviously, gentlemen. Um, Doug Mackey was indicted. He had a complaint sworn out two days after Joe Biden took office by a DOJ that was basically chomping at the bit to do something that they couldn't do while Trump was president. And they did. And it was related not to the 2020 election. And this was in 2021, obviously. It was to the 2016 election and happened in 2015 and 2016. So they waited a long, cold five years to be able to bring charges in a complaint format, which is for exigent circumstances, not for a, a threat that has been you know well investigated. You'd go to a grand jury normally. So that's really weird. But what they did is they went after novel process, novel charges. It's the same thing we just saw in Colorado, the novel attempt to apply laws. And it's the same thing that we're hearing, which you exposed to me for the first time about this RICO statute. It's a novel application of the law. And one of the things that we talked about the first time, uh, Baker, the first time that we talked, you said that it was, I think, the most uh, successful government messaging program kind of psyop or, or a propaganda tool that's ever been done. And moreover, it's also been an incredible testing ground for novel applications of the law, both jurisdictional and statutory. They're playing with all these different laws to see how badly can we bend the judiciary. Uh, if in that instance, can you kind of reflect on your experience of it? Because I, I think we're I think we're seeing as you as you're part of a much broader trend, if, if, you're, if we're being honest about it. Well, the, the entire January 6th issue is a much broader trend. And this is where the envelopes are being pushed on uh, uh, on all sides by the Department of Justice, uh, FBI, is because they are they just like COVID. They are seeing what they can get by with. Mm-hmm. And and they're doing this in case after case. It doesn't matter if it's the grandma who went in through the rotunda for 10 minutes and took a couple selfies or if it's Stuart Rhodes. It doesn't matter. They're, they're pushing the envelope on every single case. And and uh, and between my interviews and your interviews that you've uh, of the J6ers, you've interviewed, we, we could spend hours and hours just breaking down each of these cases and the anomalies thereof. But let's just start with the fact that I OK. Um, this was largely an off-the-record meeting that I had a couple of weeks ago with the Attorney General's office in Florida. I um, I'm going to be very careful about what I'm going to say, but I think I can I think I can say this is when I gave those staffers with the Attorney General's office the specific incidences of a couple of those envelope-pushing activities in the state of Florida. They, they were not aware of, by the way, which is mind-boggling to me. But when I did, to watch their eyebrows go up and then watch them lean forward in the room. The same move you know, that uh, that uh, Noyes had when uh, you told him you were standing on a park bench. Exactly, but for it's, a completely different reason. It, it, I mean, isn't that amazing, though, how few people that are theoretically paid to know that we, like, you and I and, and Garrett and Steve, like, we live, we eat, we breathe this stuff. This is our everyday. It doesn't matter if it's J6. It's all the stories some more myopic than others. And yet the, the absolute ignorance, and I don't say that in in like a condescending way. It's just like people are straight up ignorant. They do not know all of the things that are being done. And And many people cannot see the broader trend, which is what I just expressed. Novel interpretation, jurisdictional pushing, you know, weaponizing of the judiciary. It's happening on every single thing. They, they literally are the opposite of what it's, it's what progressives do actually. Progressives basically try to take ground everywhere they can, yeah. and they're doing it in every single way that it comes up. It doesn't matter if it's a Trump 
or if it's a you or anything else. This Great is uh, th this is the conversation that that Kyle and I were texting to each other this morning. As this is the the Dark Knight, we're gonna have another movie reference here for the Amrad podcast. This is the Joker from the Dark Knight. I just do things. Everybody has plans, but I'm just gonna do things, and I'm gonna count on the fact that most people are too addicted to their comfort and lazy and dumb to do anything about it. I mean, they just assume that if you're acting that you must know what you're doing and therefore it's fine. Or they just can't be confronted with being inconvenienced to step up against it, which is what the other side has done to everybody with January 6th. They're, I mean, they're charging with tax fraud crimes. They're tax crimes for January 6th. Yeah. And there's now they're finally pushing back at the Supreme Court level on it. But how many, it's over 300 people have been convicted of this crime? Yeah. Yeah, and this is this is what this is what's happening. And it, it and look, I'm talking to three of you right now. Ever, ever in your previous life with your previous girlfriend, did you ever swat a misdemeanor? Offender? Never, never. Nope. I mean, if if we had a misdemeanor even come in, we we'd at most just kick it local. You know, like we wouldn't. Why would you spend the time and effort on that? You're the FBI. Like it just well, it doesn't question, make sense for you is my question for you is, is what is the reason for this to be happening on Moss? Because it's happening over and over and over again. They're still continuing to do that. I always forget this guy's name because he has such a, 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 a difficult to pronounce last name, but the, the guy a couple of weeks ago from uh, uh, da uh, daily wire, the actor, how you done Siaka Masakwai. Yeah. Thank Masakwai. Thank you. And, and so, so, Again, misdemeanor. We're normalizing something that's not yep. normal, and it's, and they they go in and scoop him up in force at the airport. Mm -hmm. They let him. Flight. They let him fly. They got a warrant a yes. warrant for his arrest. Yes. two weeks before they arrested him via complaint, which is for exigent circumstances, and then they allowed him to fly. So theoretically, he's a domestic terrorist, and you let him fly, and then you met him at the airport in force when you know he's unarmed because he was you know on an airplane. Right. Right. It's uh, it's the new boogeyman for the FBI is kind of how I've been been putting it. So if you go back in time for the FBI's history, let's go to January first, nineteen twenty. That's when the Palmer raids occurred. The FBI were they weren't even the FBI then, but they were. That was the Bureau of Investigation. That was her first. Uh, that was her first pre makeover. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they were the heavy arm of rounding up all the communists and other dissidents and none of these people had any due process and many of them were uh, deported because of the red scare. And then fast forward a little bit further, let's just go to uh, after Pearl Harbor, the FBI, again, the heavy hand and rounding up Japanese immigrants and Japanese Americans and sticking them in internment camps. Fast forward a little bit more civil rights movement. The FBI was the heavy hand in telling Martin Luther King Jr. to kill himself <laughs> this is the same FBI. It exists today. Fast forward a little bit more. It was militias, Waco type things, Ruby Ridge in the 90s. And then 9-11 happens and it was Muslim Americans or, or immigrants and Islamic extremism. And that's when the toolbox was opened. And now that toolbox is being turned against you and anybody of any us, anybody of any conservative bent. Uh, and J6 is is the the primary event that they can point to and say see look at all the terrorism that happened even though they're using misdemeanor you know charges of standing on a park bench or um 
the, these IRS laws or tax laws that they're using, it's it's lawfare at its finest. Kyle talked about how this is what progressives do. Absolutely, 100%. I'm thinking about all of the statutes around the statues, the statues, not statutes around the country that are getting torn down. They, they are rewriting everything. They're rewriting history. They're rewriting America. And this is part of it. They're rewriting the law. And the Constitution, as we know it, the Constitution we learn about in college before we were FBI agents and the constitutional law classes we had as FBI agents, it's it's not going to exist. It's it's well on its way to being shredded and tattered. We're, we're already well down that road. And it's I think it's only going to get worse. I just talked to Tommy Robinson yesterday on Twitter. We did like a Twitter space. He popped in there. Some of you guys may know who Tommy Robinson is, but he's pushed back against a lot of the like is Islamization of uh, of Great Britain. And he's gotten himself into a bunch of messes. And of course, just like uh, Doug Mackey, he's been referred to as a neo-fascist and a white nationalist and some other kind of nasty things. Uh, had hit, plenty of hit pieces written about him as a human being. Seems like a pretty nice guy. People that know him think very highly of him. So it just kind of depends on which which newspaper you read, how you feel about the guy. But he said the, the playbook, you know, uh, he explained it in very long form, and it's the same thing that we've all been saying. And uh, Baker, you've been experiencing it, and Steve and I have named it, and I know Garrett has experienced it as well. The process is the punishment. It literally, just because it's going to be made right if you stick around long enough and go to jail and actually get you know vindicated, there's a bunch of people who have had their lives absolutely ruined over this stuff, which I know you've reported on plenty, and yeah. we've talked to some of them. They have had their faith in the American system absolutely devastated. Uh, you know, you're sitting on here. There's two of us that are that are military veterans, and we would never tell our children to serve in this military, not because we think that the, the idea of serving the people of the United States is bad, but because the government that is now representing those people is doing evil shit over and over and over again. They are absolutely abusing the trust of the American people that they were entrusted with, and they're doing it a lot of times just because of complacency. And then the sad thing is the people that we think know whether it's the attorney general down in Florida, which we'll get right back into. I know we're going to get there. But uh, also people that are investigating, like the people that we think should know the story. You're like, well, those people are obviously going to come save us. Like they're paying attention to what's going on. It doesn't matter if you're talking about the investigators for all the big cases, the big think tanks. We constantly are sharing stories. And a year later, they've never heard of them. The people that are paid to be able to pay attention to this. It doesn't matter if it's like good organizations like Heritage Foundation have never heard of some of the stuff that Steve and I and Garrett have brought forward that you have been doing on January 6th. They've never heard it. Because bandwidth is limited and yeah. people are just hoping it goes away so they can go back to the status quo of, I guess, locking up people that paraded around in the Capitol. You want to keep going with the uh, the attorney general meeting? Just like the ignorance of it is so shocking to me. Yeah. It's it's mind blowing. It really is. Well, I'll, I'll use this Masquoia event uh, uh, and I'll segue back into the attorney general meeting. But the sure. point being is that he when he was arrested and it was reported the next morning, the first words out of my mouth that morning were. Oh my God, I'm next. Did you because, say it that politely or was it, was it more? No, I, I, I yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was a couple of other, uh, letters <laughs> and expletives in between, <laughs> but the, the, there it is. We got the beep ready, <laughs> but, but I realized that, okay, they have reached a point now. Remember I said earlier, they're pushing the envelope, pushing, what can we get by with? What can we get by with in this national psyop that we are? Because look, the 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 overreaching and overriding most important story of January 6th, believe it or not, is not Brian Sicknick, the officer dying the next day of a stroke. It's not Ashley Babbitt being shot that day, although the tragedy that it was. It is not even the 
1,200 and something people that have been arrested and charged so far. The overriding story of January 6th is that they are using this because of that narrative capture that we talked about the first time we had a conversation, you and I, Kyle, this largest narrative capture in the history of our country. And they are using this to push the envelope and see what they can get by with. And it is an extension of COVID. Uh, it is an extension of the um, uh, election. And I'm going to say something that's going to, all right, this is, this is it. Here we go. Everybody's going to get, the Twitterverse is going to go nuts now, uh -oh. especially this, the sedition hunters are going to uh, use this against me. Uh, hell, it may even show up in my trial, what I'm about to say. I'm excited about that then. You ready? <laughs> okay. As you know, even though I am not, <laughs> I am the, I, I am the antithesis of a pro-Putin, pro-Russian person. I worked against the Russian regime for years. I am as anti-communist as anybody could possibly be. I'm as anti-Putin as anybody could possibly be. But as a result of my January 6th research studies investigations, I had the opportunity to sit down and interview the actual um, uh, head of Russian television, in DC. So the actual field, uh, producer head of, head of their operation. And I'm not talking about RT. I'm talking about actual toss Russian television, their investigative, um, and news service that was operating out of DC. So I had this opportunity to sit down and, and talk with him. And he told me very specifically in his, you know, very heavy Russian accent that the election, COVID, January 6th, they're all related. And what he meant by that was, and now obviously you don't get to be the guy at the top of TOS news agency operating in DC, unless you're wearing two hats. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? Let, let me flesh that out less you have to, because I worked CI, I worked counterintelligence folks. And when you work for state affiliated media, if you are not actually receiving a W2 style paycheck from an intelligence service, then your buddy is an intelligence officer on a regular basis. We, you'd be what we call a co-optee, which means you operate on behalf of, and you are a, you are a, a documented nexus to the intelligence service. Where, and in a formal relationship, there's only one way you get to do that in areas like that, whether it be China or whether it be Russia, there's some other, you know, North Korea is probably completely captured. They're probably just the same hat. The hat is the one hat. But um, but there's a 100 percent chance that this person has a massive overlap, if not the entire circle on the Venn diagram with Russian intelligence. Yeah. And and because they're a propaganda organization. That's what they absolutely. do. My 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 understanding of, of that was clear long before I ever met with him. Oh, I'm sure. And you know what's fun is that Matt Taibbi talks about this stuff too. And yeah. you know, he's he also spent time in Russia and has a very yeah. similar and like if you don't anybody who's done this sort of thing, no, this is not you were not uninitiated to this type of uh, operation, I'm sure. Right. So but but as he began to explain to me the interconnectivity, the point is is he knows more than the average person knows about yes. what is happening behind the scenes. And so 
I know as I talk about this narrative win, which was, uh, you know, uh, you know, Pelosi's fam famous, uh, um, phrase on the first anniversary of January 6th, when she first entered uh, the very first of her many, um, commemorative events that she, uh, oversaw that week, she said that the purpose of this week and these events were, and this is a quote to establish and preserve the narrative of January 6th. It's almost like the uh, the alcohol got to her brain and she said the truth. That was a yeah. Freudian type slip, it feels and like. And she repeated that phrase several times that week. Mm -hmm. And so the narrative that was won is what has been allowing them to push these envelopes to get by with this. And when I realized that they went after Massaquai and they got him and they were able to do it in such a high profile way, as you rightly pointed out, Steve, is that, you know, a, a guy that they know beyond any shadow of a doubt was not armed at the time because he just got on plane and, and, and to arrest him where they did in such a public place, I said to myself, okay, whatever limitations they had before, whatever we had done previous with my previous press offensive back in November and December of 21, which I think successfully backed them off then, because when they told me that I would be charged within a week, then we launched a press offensive right there. And then I, in, in my mind, I thought, okay, even though my personal profile is much, I mean, like infinitely larger now working with blaze and, and with the, the, the stories that I had been releasing, I said to myself when he was arrested, okay, I'm next because they don't care. They know it, now what they could get by with. It's two things, though, I think, Steve, because I think we should be really I think we should be fair minded about the way that they approach this. It's it's a lot like um, an, a novice general that doesn't understand how to run their troops. You know, everybody trained during uh, peacetime, but they've never gone to war. And so they were like, oh, we'll just we'll just grab Baker. We'll grab these people, we'll grab all these things. We're going to throw all of our threats out. We're going to set out our battle plan. It meets first contact. The first thing that happens is you got big and loud immediately. And you did that to the point where they were like, oh, we actually can't engage on this offensive right now. We're going to have to put that. We're going to table that one. And now they've got an army that's been blooded. It's gone out there. It's got a bunch of kills. It's got a bunch of captures. It's got a bunch of successes. And it's got a bunch of notches on its belt that have showed success. And also, more importantly, and I think this is the biggest piece of it, they've normalized these tactics to the point where the American people have not rebelled. It's not like when the FBI shows up at 6 a.m. for a search warrant on somebody that was you know, all the neighbors knew he was at January 6th, but he's a really nice guy and he's the T-ball coach. And, you know, he was showing his videos on Facebook and all he did was march around and, you know, took some pictures and selfie and he brought home a brochure. That guy got swatted and nobody stopped the motorcade from leaving. They let it happen, which is what you'd expect to happen in America, because we theoretically still have this nominal belief that there's constitutional law. And because they've gotten to the point where America hasn't reacted as in a single voice and said, stop this shit. And I keep, I, I'm sorry, my dad tells me to stop swearing on these things. He, he listens to every single one of my shows, but there's no other way to talk about this stuff without being outraged just a little bit. And if you're not outraged, folks, then that's part of the, that's part of what they're going for. That's the win. It turns out that actually is the win. That's the, the victory that allows this kind of steady, progressive chipping away at it. And it keeps going. So regardless of how big your, your, your profile is, we've stepped to the point where we've seen in action, they've, they've got victories under their belt. And now they think they can take on a Steve Baker, even if Steve Baker is bigger than the old Steve Baker. That that's where I fear is really going on. The normalization of it and the inaction has begotten more inaction. That's what inertia is. It's either tendency to stay at rest or the tendency to stay in motion. The American people are at rest right now. They've been quelled in their their uprisings, except, you know, like if you love Hamas or something. 
You know, the one question that I want to ask agent Craig Noy is, is simply this, and he's listening. So I'll ask you this right now, Craig, would you rather be doing what you're doing right now in terms of building a case against me for standing on a bench inside the crypt of the Capitol or would you rather be going after people that are actually doing damage to this country that are actually harming our citizens who are actually doing violence? I mean, even if it's a January 6th case, you've spent two and a half years on me for what reason? And how many cases is this guy carrying? I mean, he's and, in an RA, so maybe yeah. he's got 20 cases if he's really an overachiever. No, and, he's JTDF, yeah. man. No, not a chance. Yeah, it's single digits. Well, yeah. or everybody has 20 cases between the whole JTTF. Yes. Well, you know, and mostly you know, you're just going out and knocking on doors yeah. that are like, you know, threat to life stuff. They, you know what our intel is. Our intel on Noyes is, is, is that he came out of the Charlotte field office. Uh, he uh, had, I think, um, I forget how many years he had there, but he's got, he's at somewhere between 16 and 18 years total with the Bureau right now. He's keeping his head down. I've, Golden been, told, I've been told that he's a uh, good guy and that the, um, the, the agent who gave me the intel on him actually said these words, that they're surprised that he's doing what he's doing right now. Um, he's doing what he's told. That he moved to Raleigh with his family for better quality of life, get out of Charlotte, and and it was an easier gig in a uh, much lower crime rate in Raleigh than it is in Charlotte, and so um, yeah, so so I ask you, Greg, why are you doing this? There's conversations that were going on, at least in my office, where they were getting on call, calls from Washington, and these cases were being delayed, and they said, yeah, we don't we, we don't know what we're gonna do on this one yet. Let's just go back through the code book and see if we can't find more charges to tack on this person because they know how weak the cases are, especially for a case like yours. So I imagine your case is something like that, which is why it's taken so long because they just, they keep delaying it because they know it's going to be inconvenient and they're just going to go back through that code book and see if they can find something like the park bench mm -hmm. crime or, or something to that effect so that, that they can avoid having to deal with you saying, well, I, I didn't violate any of, the, the provisions that you're alleging that I did because they know that you're you're going to be a squealer you're going to want you're going to be one that's going to make them actually have to work for it whereas most people are just going to plead guilty get get beyond it and and then they can just get another victory in the win column and then move on to the next one and nobody is willing to just you know I'm sure your attorney's probably like this I mean he's he's like the Tom Cruise character from A Few Good Men he walks in and is like were you absent the day they taught law at law school <laughs> right. At least con law, right? Uh, by the way, I'm going to be 10-7 for a second, and I hear Garrett with a dip, deep sigh, which means that Garrett has some strong feelings yeah. that are pen, that are welling up. I can I can feel Garrett's uh, uh, feelings welling up. So anyway, I'm 10-7 for a second. All right. Uh, yeah, I'm Steve, you just nailed it about these agents and whoever else, AUSAs, I'm sure, can be involved sometimes. Going through the code book and just coming up with whatever extra things they can tack on. And it's it's great timing because we have only one Debbie Lee. She threw up a few rumble rants uh, to, to get us all to kind of respond to that very thing. In her first one, she says, those of us charged with felony 1512, which is uh, tampering with um, a witness, victim, or informant, uh, she says, we live this nightmare 24-7. What is the panel opinion on the 1512 case before SCOTUS? which for those of you who don't know, is Supreme Court of the United States, will we prevail? And so I was engaging with her a little bit in the chat and 
she says the AUSA literally said the government view of Ms. Lee's case has evolved. No new evidence. And so as far as the the Supreme Court case uh, regarding this topic, I was not aware of it. So I'm going to dig into that a little bit. Will you prevail? I sure hope so. But um, you never know these days with even the Supreme Court in my view. You know, Steve Baker has been talking about how this is all connected, uh, starting with COVID and then moving the needle forward more and more with, uh, you know, restrictions and whether you're, you know, a mandatory employee or not. And leading up into January 6th, I won't hold my breath. I think the three branches of government they're not as co-equal as we've been led to believe our whole lives. The legislative branch, they don't seem interested in doing much. The judicial branch, I mean, we'll see, I guess, what happens with this case. But I don't know. It seems like the executive branch, because that's what the FBI and DOJ, where they come from, it seems like they are the ones really with the reins of government. Because honestly, who's going to stop the FBI from doing whatever they want? Who's going to stop the AUSAs at DOJ from doing whatever they want with coming up with whatever law they can to say, okay, we're going to charge you with this now. And then, you know, Deb Lee, as you mentioned, you're heading into your misdemeanor case and now they throw this felony at you. And it just, in my mind, it just goes to show more of these Agent Noyes types who they're willing to sacrifice you for themselves. They're willing to sacrifice Whatever it takes, they're willing to sacrifice their conscience. Um, I've heard it put this way by a former colleague of mine in the FBI. It was something like the perpetual persecution of personal principles for like your paycheck, your pension, and your promotion. And I think in a lot of ways, that really is what it is. You know, Steve was talking about Noya's moving to Raleigh uh, for a better, better quality of life. He may have that better quality of life in his day-to-day business, uh, but then he's working cases like this to just try to get something to stick because he was told to. And it, it makes me think of our trip to the Holocaust Memorial Museum. Uh, for those of you who, who follow us, you know, we talk about that a lot. And maybe some of you think it's getting old. I hope not. But it it is a very poignant trip. And there's a reason they send every FBI employee to the Holocaust Memorial Museum. And it's so we don't forget the sins of the past. We don't forget what humans are capable of. And that includes humans in law enforcement. Uh, I would say especially humans in those positions of power like that need to be cognizant and reminded of what humans have done to each other throughout history. And if we don't start turning these things back now, like it's a, it's a dangerous era. I, I know I've said it before. Uh, it's 1933 Germany. And in the early thirties in Germany, there was massive law enforcement reform. You had to be a Nazi, a, a, a member of the Nazi party to be in law enforcement then. And no one then thought, oh, it's going to end in us murdering people. But fast forward to July of 1942 and this tale of the ordinary men, the reserve police battalion. And that's precisely what they were doing. But in the thirties, it was, okay, I'm not really, I'm not really a Nazi, but you know, I got to get my pension and I'm, I'm 10 years away. So I, yeah, okay, fine. I guess I'll just sign on to the Nazi party because I can't lose my job. I, I couldn't fathom that. I've got mouths to feed and a mortgage to pay. Yeah. 
Yeah, we all do. That doesn't mean you sacrifice what is right. It doesn't mean you sacrifice what is good. It doesn't mean you sacrifice what is holy. It doesn't mean you sacrifice your oath so you can get that biweekly paycheck every two weeks. Well, I, that's redundant, but, you know, you, if, if we go back, you guys want to respond to that. The, uh, I'm 10 8, by the way. The connectivity between uh, COVID, the 2020 election, and January 6th. And we piece together what is the most important uh, connective tissue, and that is their attack against speech on every single count. And this is what the establishment and the preservation of the narrative and why it's so important to the progressives, because they through are throwing a wet blanket over the First Amendment right now with regards to all three of those. As you know, we just start with COVID. If we opposed the regime in any way, shape, or form. Now, when, when COVID came to town, I was 60 years old. I weighed 165 pounds. I was, even at my age, I knew that this was, uh, you know, uh, something that the, the, the shot, any, all of that, I didn't need it. I, I was healthy. I, I had seen the numbers. I had run the math before, before the, the, um, uh, before we ever knew that the, uh, infected fatality rate was less than 1%. I had already run the math just using basic fifth grade long division and had determined that it was somewhere around a quarter of a percent. And that was as an average against uh, across all age groups and all um, health groups as well. I knew that the elderly, the people with four or five, eight comorbidities were most vulnerable and that was ratcheting the numbers up. But even at 60 years old, it wasn't affect, it was not going to affect me are extremely minimal. Isn't, isn't it wild though, that everybody who who looked at it and said, I am basically a skeptic, and I think that's your position, That's that would be that investigator sort of background that you got. If you're a skeptic and someone tells you, look, we have all the data on something that we've never had this kind of fast data on before in history, and we're gonna show you a live death count on CNN and on Fox News and on MSNBC and ABC and, and, all, and all, all the rest, and you go, how in the world are they calculating these numbers? Like these numbers look like the national debt, which we can actually do because there's an algorithm and because those numbers are fixed and normalized. Uh, how in the actual hell are they telling you that people are dying when we get that information in real life, two years in arrears? Anybody who's ever done death statistics, who's ever worked in EMS, who's ever worked in public safety, who's ever read a newspaper and been like, oh, the numbers for 2022 aren't out yet. But based on the most recent numbers of homicides in Chicago, which was 2021, you know, we know that the finalized number are still 18 months old. That's just wait. That's how numbers work, because reporting takes time. And they were giving you apparently like actual real time. There was like apparently a bunch of people from the government that were like monitoring people. And they're like, okay, he's dead. That's COVID. Uh, okay. Yeah. He's also dead. He, that's COVID. And they were running numbers like, like this. We know that's not real. It was just, it was so obviously full of crap right up front. And then how funny is it? Your, your RT connection or your, your Russian television connection, your, your, your spook that you're talking to in the United States. Congratulations on the schedule G. Yes. Uh, yeah, CIA just, investigation. That totally justifies out. an intelligence investigation. We all have those <laughs> now, so it doesn't matter. I'm sure you had one beforehand. But the idea is, is that uh, COVID, messaging victory, public, uh, public thrust into the, the sphere where they are actually changing the way that the system works. They're changing the source code. <laughs> Steve thinks it's the most overrated movie in the world, but the matrix, let's do a, a movie reference in the matrix. When they did the change of the code in the matrix, that, that's when you got the deja vu, right? Like that was something that was big when I was in high school, they changed the code, in the matrix. That's when you saw the cat glitch and it goes by twice and they changed it for COVID. 
They changed it for the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax. They moved the goalpost on that. They changed it about what's going on with January 6th. All these things, and all of them also, interestingly enough, tied into the biggest government involvement in censorship that's ever happened, at least in our awareness, with the Twitter file unveiling and all the other stuff that Taibbi and Schellenberger have been showing. All of these stories were related, and they all are happening at the same time. Government weaponization, censorship, and the government getting involved in First Amendment protected liberties, um, you know, public health being weaponized against people, and the messaging campaign that's coming from all of them, and the fact that the media is complicit in it, which... You know, let's be real. The media has always had versions of itself and parts of itself that were captured. But the idea that all of these were working in concert to deprive liberty is the antithesis of what I think. This is why you're so scary, uh, Steve Baker. This is why people are scared of you, because you're doing the blue collar work of journalism. It's why people are scared of real independent journalism, because if you're not subject to a big corporation that needs a bunch of government handouts, then you're truly untethered to do investigations, which is kind of what we thought the FBI was doing, but we know that they're not. How scary is it that it all sews up into this nice, neat purse of America is kind of screwed right now. We're going to have to fight our way out of this bag. The good news is the enemy's in all directions. Literally, all you got to do is swing and you're going to hit the bad guys because they're they're surrounding us. So it makes it easy. We got them right where we want them. They're in all directions, everywhere we shoot. I mean, at the, end, solid. at the end of the day, would, would Special Agent Craig Noyes rather be investigating me for standing on a bench or would he rather be investigating corruption at the Capitol police that's tied to representatives in the house, which is then tied to what if, what if the worst, what if the, the worst former, case is hundred percent? No, 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 no. What if the worst is true? Okay. Let's speculate on this just for a minute. What if he doesn't care? Yeah. And that, 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 that's where I think, be. like, throw Garrett up here because I think, like, that's the thing that I've arrived at. What if it? What if it's six of one, half dozen of the other, and it, as long as they get my paycheck, I'll yeah. just do whatever you tell me. What and if that's I, the case? I think that's most. I think that's where most are at, and they may even sometimes think, "Man, sorry, Steve Baker," you know, in their heart of hearts. But who comes first? The self. The vast majority of people on Earth put self before everybody else. They don't have this. I think people in law enforcement, especially in the FBI, you're a leader, whether you want to be or not, you're in the FBI, you're an FBI agent. And they make movies about they're like, you're a real person. And they make movies about people that are supposed to be like you, even if they're right. fake and, and garbage. The most interesting yeah. person in every room you walk into. And I, like for and, me, I guess Steve and I have talked about this on, on AMRAD. It, and you guys know, right? where am I going to go? I'm going to go to Christ. Shortly before he was crucified, what did he do? He washed his disciples' feet as an act of true servant leadership. We don't see that from the FBI. We don't see that from the DOJ. We don't see that from the White House. We don't see that from the leaders in this country. They will put themselves first every time. I think of my time in the Army. My The best leaders I had were the ones who would get down and dirty in the muck with us. They were the ones who would do the thing that they asked you to do. The best of the best were the ones who would do the harder thing and not even ask you to do it. And we just, by and large, we don't see that. We just don't have it. And whether it's Agent Noyes or a countless other people in the FBI or the government writ large, we can point to and say, you, you don't deserve the position you're in. You're, you're forsaking your oath every day. And it's just, it's just a shame, man. Like, yeah, I'm brooding. I'm going to mute myself and brood I, some more. 
I was I'm reminded of the 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 time that he's got in apparently from what your intel is telling you it's it's really consistent with the advice that I got from a very senior agent um, when I was in Indian country where you're fully assigned at 25 cases I mean I was carrying like 40 and it was it, the ebbs and flows go out there where uh, you could just be going a thousand miles an hour at all times and things just always reach a crescendo and all all your cases at the same time. It's just the, the nature of the work out there. And I was at one of those places and it was pretty early in my career and I was like super stressed out. And uh, he just comes up to me, he goes, hey, Steve, you know what the winner of the pie eating contest gets? Another pie. And because he wasn't working more cases than he had. Is, to. And, is that and, not the most like federal thing you could ever hear? It's, it's like, uh, hey, I, I used to tell people this too. And and Baker, this is worth knowing when you look at these guys across the table from you. There's no bonus for convicting Steve Baker. There's no bonus for an indictment. He's already got his dream post. If he's on his dream sheet and got to move to the place that he wanted to retire from, there's no bonus for, for showing up and working harder on things that you know are illegal, immoral, unethical, or just downright make you feel gross. You can slow play that. You're a fed. You got 15 years in, other than like my buddy Phil, you're never going to get canceled for doing your job. Your your energy you bring to it is your energy. And so the idea that like a pie eating contest or the idea that you would just, you know, I would rather find the truth and I'd rather find exculpatory information, which is what you've been doing in your investigative work, which is, you know, apparently outside of the, the purview. The government is looking for wins. The government is supposed to actually win when the process works. And the, and the outcome of it is irrelevant. The idea that we've got all these AUSAs who are looking to notch their belts so maybe they can go be a great defense attorney somewhere and make a bunch of money. Like, I don't know what they're doing. I don't get it. But if you bring something to an AUSA and go, by the way, this is a shitty case and here's why. And I found this exculpatory information and we have to disclose it. So why would we even like just close it? Just give me a declination letter. Let's close this case because it's trash. That should have been happening left and right. And it should have been like, you know, closed for bandwidth. Close for any reason you want. There's a bunch of administrative codes we can close close investigations on. But I like my proudest moment as an FBI agent was literally finding exculpatory evidence. And that's kind of silly. It was closing a case that was brought to me by an AUSA about a guy who was listed on the sex offender registry. We thought he was doing something that he wasn't. My investigation, which was not a ton of work, but I had to go and, and get some files unsealed and some court records that were 15 years old. And when we did, it was very apparent that the thing that we thought was happening was not happening and there was no reason to continue. And we shut it down. I have, that was hand, I have hand delivered. If the Department of Justice was truly interested in justice and not what you said, notches in their gun belts, mm -hmm. I have hand delivered them on a silver platter with a linen napkin, the evidence of corruption in a government agency and the evidence of perjury in their courtroom. If they were interested in justice, wouldn't they be interested in that? Wouldn't they want to be screaming bloody murder? How did that get past us? How did these guys get on the stand? First of all, neither one of them should have even been allowed to be there because of their disciplinary files, which we are going to be showing the world very shortly. I, I want to uh, I want to cover this like long form. I actually want to bring up the letter and some of the stuff that we're going to talk about right there. I also want to show another video of you uh, doing some Bowie stuff because mm. I just think we can use a little palate cleanse because it's kind of heavy. Uh, if you'll bear with me, if you guys wanted to, to take a 10-7 break too, let me do a quick ad read for my folks over at uh, at Four Patriots if that's cool. And you guys can take a quick breather and uh, we'll we'll get ready to tie into some heavy stuff and then we'll wrap this thing up. Folks, if you want to go to fourpatriots.com slash Kyle, the number four patriots with an S on the end of it, dot com slash Kyle. 
Uh, the stuff that they have, have sent me was the survival food. I got the 72-hour pack. You guys can go anywhere from a single meal to a 72-hour pack, which is good for a family of four for a couple days. And uh, you can work all the way up to the one year of survival supplies if you guys want to make sure that you hedge yourself against the contingency that something really wild kicks off in this country and you are unable to feed your family. It's really nice to be able to know that you got that security and the peace of mind. It's uh, guaranteed for 25 years. This stuff is packed and durable and made to be able to last so you don't have to use it right away. You don't have to cycle it through. Um, it's the good news and the bad news. You're going to be storing it and you're going to be holding on to it for that for that rainy day when things go sideways. Uh, you if you're a camper or you're a hiker, you can also work it into your regular routine and make sure you're used to preparing it on a wood fire or anything like that. And they've got all kinds of fire starters and they've got uh, solar stuff. So check out for the number four patriots.com slash Kyle. Again, for patriots.com slash Kyle. Or if you go to their website through any other link, you can just use our promo code K-Y-L-E. It's going to save you money on all the different little bundles they put together and uh, worth your time to think about it. When we're talking about all those government malfeasance and so, sort of the ugly things that are happening out there in the world, um, man... It can scare you, and you can hedge against that by having some opportunities to do it. Let's uh, play one of those videos because I made you download them, Ryan, if you would. I want to throw – we played, I think, the Bowie experience. One. Did we play video – yeah, let's two. play number two, two because, folks, if you're, a, if you're a Bowie fan, China Girl is probably on your list. This is a, a fan video that was made. We found this on YouTube, and uh, this is Steve Baker, the man you've been hearing about, having the FBI come after him. I just kind of like painting the picture. This is a guy who made his living on stage for most of his life. And as he's done this transition, like so many, like me and Garrett and Steve have, uh, all of us have sort of had this transition that happened in January 6th was one of those marquee moments where we went from being uh, W-2 employees to being now self-paid, self-employed, doing this kind of a thing. Uh, in Baker's case, he's going the other way. He's actually now on the payroll of the Blaze, but this used to be his gig routine. He used to go do stuff like this and uh, he's, you know, he's pretty talented. Let's play video number two. I get excited If you don't love Bowie, if you're not a Bowie fan, then you can't appreciate how fun that is. But it's really uh, amusing to me to see it. When he told me he had a Bowie uh, tribute act the other day, I was like, you got to be kidding. It's called the American Bowie Experience. You guys can go find some of those on YouTube and check out the other facet. A little bit a little bit more fun, probably a more fun time. And definitely maybe not the same amount of rewarding, but the uh, the gravity there of keeping a an audience enjoying their night is a little different than what we're doing right here, where we're just exposing malfeasance left and right. And so I just wanted you guys to have a little taste of it. I, like I said, it, every person, every one of you out there has more than one little facet of your story. And it's worth noting that these January 6 people, all the folks that have been accused of it, like they basically had their entire lives boiled down to like a few minutes, you know, that could be measured literally in minutes. And now they're crypto fascists or they're, they're crypto fascists or they're white nationalists and all the other horrible things that have been thrown against them. You know, they had a whole history behind them. And I know that uh, Steve's whole life was doing a bunch of wild stuff. You've heard a little bit of it. It's just worth pointing this out that, um, you know, we're all more than one thing. We all live sort of in a shade of gray. I don't think anybody is a, is a totally black or a white actor. 
Even I'm mean, even even a Vladimir Putin probably has some people that love him and probably does some nice things every once in a while or you know pets a dog and and feeds it a treat. So just it, it's worth knowing that that there's a little bit more to all these stories. But we're going to talk about perjury. We're going to talk about uh, sort of the things that he's unveiled here that should be the focus, I think, of DOJ's investigations. And it turns out that they're not interested in that. They're pushing the narrative, the Nancy Pelosi narrative, and they're pushing some stuff. Are we going to go into Harry Dunn? Is that where you want to go with this, uh, Mr. Baker? Well, now that I'm 10-8 <laughs> from my coffee break. 10-8, everybody. Uh, oh, by I the way, that got like a lot in the chat that people were like, what's the 10-7? Like, what's going on there? Uh, 10 codes. I, I, uh, I, uh, I missed the clip. Which clip did you show? We did uh, China Girl and uh, Let's Dance. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great, by the way. That's a, that's a, uh, you, you got like a little bit more bass in your voice, I think, than Bowie did. Yeah, maybe most of it. So. Yeah, yeah, maybe so. A little bit. Uh, do you, do actually, you smoke on stage when you do that, by the way? Were you smoking on some of them or is that uh, theatrical smoking? It's just theatrical. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I care. But I was I was told uh, by one of my fa favorite people in the world, Frederick Owens, he was a Broadway actor. Um, uh, he was in the original Smokey Joe's. Uh, he's did. Uh, uh, oh, gosh. Uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, he was in the movie with uh, Will Smith, uh, uh, Hutch or Hitch or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. about the dog. And, and so so he he used to play keyboards in my band uh, several years ago and a uh, big, tall, gorgeous black man. And, and, and he's got that big, that's how I describe my tall black friends. Yeah, I yeah, call yeah, them yeah. gorgeous. Right. They love that. Right. Right. So he, he's got that, <laughs> that, that rich, deep, you know, low voice. And, and he told me that when he was doing uh, voiceover work up in New York, that uh, James Earl Jones, he actually was in a studio with him one day and, and James Earl Jones told him, he said, no, Every time before you go in and do voice work, he says you go outside, you smoke a Newport first. <laughs> he gives you that give, gives you that extra edge. <laughs> I hope they were doing that on the set of Conan, which right. I just watched the other day. Uh, some clips from and I was going like, man, that guy has done some wild stuff, James Earl Jones. Um, look, Gosh, your enemy is <laughs> said I'm driven before you. Are we going to do that in this country? Is are we are we swinging back where it's just going to get like uh, barbarian style? You think? I don't know, guys. It may. I'll have the hair for it at least. Yeah, you will. You will indeed. <laughs> All right, Mr. Baker. We've got a couple of different articles. I got the letter from Harry Dunn, which I think is uh, sort of an indicator of some of the stuff to come. Do you want to do you want to talk that, or did you have a different uh, mindset? Because I'm I'm willing to follow your lead right now. No, let's go with the letter. Let's start right. there. We'll work so, with, we'll work backwards from that one. So, Ryan, we got topic number three was the actual letter that you tweeted out. Let, maybe you could set it up for us. Tell us a little bit about what this letter is, and then uh, we'll read it and we can talk about why it's important. I think that's all kind of relevant. Yeah, obviously, when you start when you start pulling back the layers on, on these investigations, you find out that there's more skeletons in people's closets than you uh, initially anticipated. And one of the things that we stumbled upon was a disciplinary action related to Harry Dunn for a letter that he sent out anonymously on Capitol Police letterhead back in May of 21. So this was just only, you know, four and a half months or so after January 6th, in which he was, he took a very, or this letter, it was anonymous, so it's not him yet. Uh, yeah, and I want to, I want to take this slowly about what you just said, because that's, that's old news to you. And that's a thing you eat and breathe. But yeah, for yeah. the audience, let's, 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 let's break it down just a, a tiny bit. A letter went out on Capitol Police letterhead that was not signed by any individual. It was signed, right. it was signed as proud members of the United States Capitol Police, which will, yes. We'll talk about the irregularities of that in just a second, I'm sure. 
But the letter, and if you'll let me just kind of read that kind of the highlights, we, the members of, of the United States Capitol Police, write this letter to express our profound disappointment with the recent comments in both chambers. They go on to basically say that the Republicans are not taking care of them. The brave men and women of the Capitol Police were subjected to hours and hours of physical trauma. It's led to months in, of mental anguish. That's all pretty emotional. Uh, if you look around the Capitol, things are still broken, blah, blah, blah. They go on. They're forced to work with every single day that they, that, you know, reminders of that dreadful day and the worst thing that ever happened. They expect an investigation to get to the bottom of everyone and hold them all accountable, 100% accountable, which tells me, I don't know, when you see some people's writing style, you understand their level of education, um, which is not very highly required at Capitol Police for whatever that's worth. High school, GED is both acceptable. And then it said, last, uh, lastly, with each passing week and the new revolution about January 6th itself, a new indictment comes to light. Another newsreel of, of USCP police officers being assaulted and released goes on on. It's unfortunate that our quote unquote bosses, parenthetically Congress, are not held to the same standards that we, the U.S. Capitol Police, are. And then it's signed, again, proud members of the United States Capitol Police. Let's talk about what it is and the irregularities of it. Now you guys have seen the letter. It's on Steve's uh, Twitter feed. Definitely worth reading it yourself if you like. Yeah, the irregularity begins with the fact that it was, first of all, anonymous and on Capitol Police letterhead, therefore ostensibly representing the Capitol Police and a highly politically partisan message sent out, which of course the uh, Capitol Police by policy are supposed to be 100% nonpartisan. They work for both parties. They are the uh, security guards for both uh, the Democrats and and uh, Republicans. So th that's a, the way that they're supposed to act. Not only that, they are also federal officers, which means what else? There is a Hatch Act involved here. So I read the Hatch Act again because I had people reach out to me, including Bill Shipley. And um, the Hatch Act doesn't actually apply to anyone outside the executive. The, you, you know what? That's that's exactly right. But apparently, and this is what I learned because I was just on the, actually the day that I was I received my most subsequent uh, or recent threat from the federal government is that after that, I was sitting at table in one of the congressional office buildings with several staff members, including um, <laughs> high-ranking Capitol Police officials. I'll just say that. Fair uh, enough. Calling my name. Current, not retired. And also a um, uh, table full of lawyers. And these are all federal lawyers. They all said absolutely, because I said the same thing. I said, Hatch Act does not apply to Capitol Police. And including every one of them said, no, as a matter of fact, because of subsequent um, rulings, uh, you know how they, uh, bureaucratic administrative uh, addendums, things like that. So we don't see it in the act itself, but it has then since then been more broadly applied outside of everybody other than just the executive branch. Well, I'd be shocked if it didn't apply to you know, employees in the same way, but I would be, I would guess that's by policy and not by the Hatch Act specifically. Yeah. Like Hatch Act style policies right. must apply. They would have to because otherwise but you couldn't work within, there. Within yes, within within the handbook, within the rule book, it does apply to capital police officers. Yeah, that well. checks out. Okay, by fair enough. Department. All right, so we've got that kind of like yep. I said. I think there's a little bit of nuance on there. It, yes. It's not obviously in the original act, but the idea that you would not have a uh, nonpartisan clause to your public speech is sort of outside the range of anybody's yeah. belief. So this was the interesting development of this letter, though. Uh, this was the result of the fact that there was some a handful of GOP uh, lawmakers who did not want 
to see the formation of this House Select Committee by Pelosi. And as a result of that, there was some political, you know, wranglings that were taking place. And so Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland, who we all know, who became a prominent member of that committee. Yes. He's a member of the Crips, I think. Yes, yes. That's that's the 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 one who also happens to be uh, Officer Harry Dunn's congressman. Harry lives in his district there in, in Maryland. And so he encourages, we learn subsequently to this, actually had been the one one behind the crafting of this letter. So he encouraged Harry to, to draft this letter and Harry being not quite the Rhodes scholar or the literary, um, you know, uh, guy that, that he, he might be portrayed as having now just published a book. He, uh, <laughs> would it, would it be fair that he was like some of my buddies that got academic scholarships to play football for, for college? I know there's a nuance in that. Did we just lose Steve? Did he just freeze up? Might have just lost him. He'll come back in. Um, Harry Dunn, if you guys are not familiar with it, he's a capital, is a at least a uh, a former capital police officer now, res- just resigned just a couple of days ago, but is I don't know six five or something like that, and over three hundred pounds, and uh, kind of an interesting character as far as <laughs> he's not exactly what you would uh, you would look at and think like this is a scholar. Now I've been surprised by big guys before. There's plenty of big people in the world that can write. That's not to say they wouldn't. Garrett O'Boyle is a fantastic writer. In fact, has a Substack right here and is very thoughtful and is you know approaching a uh, Harry Dunn size. But uh, Garrett <laughs> O'Boyle also cares about what comes out of his mouth and what his thoughts are and would never be a political actor. So maybe it's a piece of character and it's a piece of capabilities. Married together, they found a very um, what? What do they call it in in Zoolander? Uh, an empty vessel. Were they able to fill him with? Go ahead, Steve. I know he's you're... just been given this like this. I don't even know special privilege as a Kappa police officer, where like he can talk to the media, and they've given him like multiple medals of valor. He's gotten to basically the media glamour as he's gone out, and it's uh, it's a PR tour for. Um, for the book, and it's a book he obviously didn't write. And I, I want to know what what this resignation. He obviously resigned before retirement age, right? So he didn't officially retire. What, what what's the deal he got? I mean, he's he's not going to be a paid. He's not going to get the FBI Barbie treatment, right? They're not going to have him on CNN as a contributor, right? I so would. Ex- I is he going to yeah. get like the the university police chief? job or they're they're finding a spot for him to land to try to move him off the x and we can forget about him and because i don't think that he's going to be paying for his his retirement with the uh, the proceeds of a book the book sales are not that good i saw you disappeared he's not back all the way in yet kyle one second oh, okay we're still bringing you back in i don't know if the audio is there yet just give it one second ryan's gonna bring you in go ahead and keep going steve with your thought Ooh, i just want to know what the deal he cut to get that resignation, I think that there's obviously something afoot where they they realize that what Steve Baker's brought out is going to be, go very badly for him, be it in courtroom testimony or just be it in bad PR thrown at him. They need to move him off the X. So I think it'll be interesting to see what sort of plum deal he gets for himself. Is it going to be private security? Is it going to be, like I said, like campus police where this, obviously his skill set's going to transfer over because he can just direct people to go to the bathroom as he's patrolling around as as some sort of like deputy chief or something yeah do you think he wants to move out to california and work for yogananda <laughs> well, i mean it's obviously going to be similar uh similar living standards that is in the dc right the cost of living he'd probably make that happen but i just know that the book proceeds the book 
market in general is not doing well enough that he's going to be able to do the, you know, I pulled down a million dollars of royalties from my book. Well, I think the old story too that we used to see is that people would just go and somebody would buy 500,000 copies of your books and put it in their warehouse and then they just hand it out to all their employees or like it just sits on a stack in their in their, you know, office warehouse where they don't care about it. So, there's always a way to to make money happen through book deals. Uh Mr. Baker, welcome back. Thanks for uh you, what happened to your denial? How, how are you denied? Uh, I I have, I have never seen a, a session terminated as immediately and aggressively as that one was. It was well, very stop, strange. In stop fact, saying true things, man. What are you doing? Well, in fact, in fact, it actually when I tried to log back in it denied even me using that browser i had to switch browsers um uh, in order to log back in but uh anyway that that had never happened but the point being i think what i think what i was saying is that is that uh under the um encouragement of jamie raskin and because uh done not being the literary star that he might otherwise be if you thought you know being a, a a published author now he actually went to the capital press room and recruited, in his own words, several female representatives of the press pool there at the Capitol to help him put this letter together. So this was. Does that on, look like you go in there and you go, "Hey, ladies, who knows how to write in English?" Yes, exactly. Something. I what need the, help with uh, word. I'm looking Please. for somebody who knows what a period is. How many That's, word per minute do you type? <laughs> I heard ladies know about that. Are they used in writing? Let's do this. <laughs> All right, sorry, we have to be like yeah, this. So, so he he uh, he successfully recruted uh, uh, any number of uh, female press. Um, uh, Did he just pick them up by their collar and walked off? He's a big, big dude. He's a big guy, yeah. six seven, three hundred fifty pounds. Six seven. I, I sold him short at six five. Yeah, that's no. a big dude. And so um, that was on May nineteenth. That evening, he after getting this successfully composed, he scrambled around. He used for hard copies. He used Capitol Police uh, printing machines, or you know, copy machines, which of course are all logged, um, you know. <laughs> and then he also used his uh, Capitol Police email. He's not a smart guy. He uses Capitol Police email to send out uh, electronic copies of this. He then hand delivered copies to uh, Jamie Raskin's uh, uh, chief of staff, and then she delivered that to all the other chiefs of staff in Congress. And then the um, mainstream press uh, pool uh, ladies, they dutifully not only protected his identity, his anonymity, but then they wrote the stories that came out the next morning on May 20th. Well, because he used- Like this? Did they do this when they yeah. did it? <laughs> do you know what the best, the best move is? Uh, Steve, you, you've got some familiarity with this. I know the boys will see this as well, but like sometimes when you have a, a source and when, when you write about the source, even though they are not specifically like a confidential source, you'll put after them in parentheses, protect identity. So you'll be like, when I got this message from Garrett O'Boyle, protect identity, you know, this and this and that. And so theoretically, when you're supposed to write it up, they're supposed to say, well, I got this message and, um, you know, blah, 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 like from a source. And there's someone who's who's quoting it is actually supposed to use the word source. And uh, even though you told the name because you're supposed to disclose it, but then you'll get these like releases that'll be like, and you could just imagine this if Harry Dunn's name was, if they wrote, hey, um, you know, we got this letter from from anonymous capital, you know, capital police officer, Harry Dunn, protect identity. <laughs> like That's what I wish I would have seen. That's that's almost the level of writing that you would see here. You could actually yeah. see them making those those like dragging those knuckle dragging uh, scars across the pavement as he continued to write this. It, it It's very heavy handed. Yeah, it's very silly looking. The, on, the only um, uh, of the press people that he named in his disciplinary uh, investigation was Whitney Wilde of CNN. Now she's their, um, she's their actual law enforcement um, uh, 
beat writer. And, and so he didn't name any of the others. In fact, he refused to name them in his disciplinary action or, or investigation rather. And so uh, he named, of course, Jamie Raskin. He named Jamie Raskin's chief of staff. He named Whitney Wilde of CNN. And then on the 21st, so just two days after he crafted this letter, the Capitol Police, uh, it, didn't, it didn't take a Sherlock Holmes to figure out who did this, and they drug him in and began the OPR, the, R, the investigation on him. And it was during this process that um, they decided to bury the entire thing, despite the massive, I mean, multiple infractions he committed here using Capitol Police resources, Capitol Police time, Capitol Police. Uh, um, uh, he wrote this on duty, is what yeah, you're saying. Yes, exactly. Uh, so in uniform, I mean, he walks in uniform into the press pool and says, I need help writing this. I mean, it's like holding a gun, you know, effectively that's walking in and saying, you know, uh, I've got a gun on you. I need you to craft this letter for me, uh, because you're in uniform at the time. Interesting. And, he was and, able to stay, you know, paid on duty while he was being investigated. Whereas yeah. you know, other people were, you know, suspended without pay and indefinitely suspended. Right. Worse than that, he was finally, uh, it was covered up, obviously, uh, somebody important, probably Raskin, I, I'm, I'm only speculating there, probably intervened on his behalf. The interesting, uh, the other interesting thing about that was that in May of 21, the uh, acting chief of police at the time was none other than Yogananda Pittman, who had been the assistant chief of police uh, on January 6th and in charge of that massive intelligence failure that we keep talking about, uh, whether purposeful or accidental or just pure incompetence. She nevertheless sat on that throne at the time. She was also the one in the command center that day, as I talked about, that was doing the rope-a-dope and watching everything from 1,700 cameras as it developed and allowing it to take place. So um, this is the person who then ultimately um, passed down the ruling on this, and he was not – well, this is, this is – I, I guess I, I am revealing something here. I'm not – you know, what the hell? Let's, let's – more breaking, more breaking news for you. I, I like what the hells and just, just yeah. send it. Yep. Yes. Yeah. This is what I'm here for. So his dis <laughs> his disciplinary review panel actually voted to convict or as they say in their terminology to sustain his um uh actions or his, the ruling. They voted to sustain and then that went up to the Capitol Police Board which of course included the um uh the, not only um well, it w the, the powers that be that intervened were, of course, the chief counsel, which is uh, his name is Tad Tobias. Uh, then there was, of course, obviously Yogananda Pittman, uh, who was the acting chief at the time. Obviously, there was Jamie Raskin, surely and most certainly intervened at the time. And it, it was overruled. So they voted not to sustain. And it was the sustained ruling by the disciplinary review panel was overruled. And then he was subsequently only given what they call a 535 for warning. All right. That's basically this. Don't do that again, Harry. That was it. That was, he was the, your medal of valor. He was, yeah, he was treated so uh, improperly. And obviously we can, we can read between the lines because he was such a critical part of the narrative Yes, and constructing and maintaining yes. and defending the narrative. Yes. Um, we're, I, I want you to just tell my, you guys, cause I'm, I'm telling, I'm talking to Ryan in the background he's got a hard stop in a few minutes here. So we're, we're coming up on the, uh, the deadline of where we've got to roll. We've been doing this for a while and I appreciate all of it. I think, I think even just this, um, let me, let me tease this out. Steve, you agreed that you would go, I'm going to be guest hosting the Dinesh D'Souza podcast at the end of the year in the next uh, week. 
Yeah. And you said you'll come on with me. I think we'll talk about the emotional aspect of being under threat of government. I think that actually falls into the sort of the purview of the police state a little bit. So, folks, if you want to see more Steve Baker, I want to I want to tease that out there there. And I don't want to come up on the hard stop uh, with us uh, doing it unceremoniously. So we're at least giving you guys kind of a we're get, we're hitting the brakes just a little bit as we come into this. But this letter is is almost tip of the iceberg. That's what you're doing over at Blaze right now. Unless I misunderstood, yeah. like you've been dealing with this full time and they're going to actually make you uh, broaden up a little bit because I know you can write about more than just this. But there's so much here you could actually spend your whole life doing this, I think. Yeah, I mean, one it was interesting when I got the call two days ago from my editor in chief, Matt Peter, Peterson, and he was uh, made me this offer, which just completely look talking about the emotional aspect of this right here. As you can imagine, at any other company, you could almost forgive them if they, if I got the call from Peterson and he said, Hey man, just want to let you know that we love you over here. You've done great work. And, but you know, with this legal thing going yeah, on, you're too hot, you know, go soon. Look, we wish you the best. We're praying for you. As soon as this is resolved, come back, man, you've got a home here at the blade. They could have easily gone that way. Yep. Instead, they have gone. I mean, they had me the next day on Glenn Beck's program. They had me on two other of their host programs right away. I mean, within two days, they had me. Um, uh, they were writing articles. They had their other writers writing articles about me. Peterson himself wrote an article entitled "Free Steve Baker." I'm not even locked up yet, and it's free Steve Baker. And and then um, completely unexpected because I'm I'm a contributor and I am compensated. You know word count, the other kickers, things like that. But the point being is that, is that to have him call me on Tuesday and say, Hey, um, just want to let you know that we want to make you a full-time offer, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we're going to bring you on full-time as an investigative journalist. rather than going the other way, it was a very emotional moment for me on a positive side because I had every reason to expect an opposite reaction from uh, Blaze Media. That just shows me what kind of people they are and that they are behind me in this process. So that that being said, what I have been doing for them and what I had been doing in the two years prior to my association with the Blaze, I've been, this is, look guys, this is all out of my pocket. You know, that $1,500 I make for licensing my videos, that's, you know, that's nothing compared to what I've spent out of my own pocket the last three years investigating, traveling, researching, interviewing, driving up to D.C. over and over and over again. Hotels, uh, Ubers, the, the expense of just being there is outrageous, as you know. And all of that was coming out of my pocket up until my association with the Blaze. And and yet I felt that it was important enough for the for the America to know what was really going on behind the scenes as it related to January 6th and the cover-ups that were taking place, that I was willing to do that. Uh, and and um, it was some really good friends up in DC that I've, I've become so associated with uh, since that event who recognized the value of what I was doing. I was sharing them my behind the scenes um, results of the work, the sourcing, all of that, that ultimately made the, them reach out to the blaze and said, Hey, you need to talk to this guy. He's on, he's onto something. So that's how, that's how all of that kind of came, came together in a brief overview. Yep. But well, let's, let's just say this about the blaze then, because every company has the potential to avoid scrutiny and to avoid uh, conflict and to avoid litigation, which is always a possibility as well. And that's more common than not in this day. I, I think many of us know the instinct to just hope it yeah. blows over and to, to turn the, it's like, well, you know, it's a good story, but it's uh, also a liability for us. And I would suggest 
for my listening audience that if you're sitting here hearing this and you go, okay, when people choose to do the right thing for the right reason, which is what we're talking about here, that's a, that's what we call the suspendables. That's what we're all about. We've got to get you a pin. I got your address, so I'll send it to you. Um, you're going to get one of the uh, the limited edition black ones, which is the people who have really earned it, who's yeah. gone out there and shown something in public. And and the Blaze is doing it too. I'll send one to Glenn Beck, you know, like good for him for stepping in the gap and saying, we could have turned our back, but what we've decided to do is use our power for good. We have our microphone and we're turning it all the way towards you instead of turning it away. And, and turning our back and hoping it works out for you. So, um, you know, I think that's, it shows us that this fight is not lost. I don't want people to be blackpilled. And that's one of the, that's one of the great instances mm -hmm. of, of a, of a, of a white pill moment or a red pill moment, if right. you will, where people are looking like, Hey, it's not over here. Yeah. We're yeah. this, we're, we're, ha we're at halftime at best. Right. You know? Right. No, it's not over. And, 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 and here's the, the thing is that I, I pray every morning, let this cup pass from me. And I'm talking about specifically the, this, this legal, um, uh, challenge that I have this gauntlet that I'm going to probably have to go through unless we get some sort of last minute reprieve and they just look at this and go, and the, the, the new AUSA who has been assigned to my case, he looks at it after reviewing everything. He goes, I just don't want to deal with this guy. Right. <laughs> you know, and this, and this happened two years ago because the original AUSA contacted my attorney and, and uh, when we went when we went on a full blown press offensive then with a, a, a huge uh, press release and she got a copy of it, she emailed emailed a copy on the same day it went out to my attorney and said, what is this? We're not happy with this, blah, blah, blah. He said, my attorney responds and said, are you suggesting that my client get forego his First Amendment privileges uh, while he's being persecuted by the federal government? She said, oh, no, that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm just saying a federal judge at some point may not look at this very well, to which I said, that's a load of crap. She doesn't care judge doesn't care. And, and then when they got on the phone with each other between the two of them, the AUSA asked my attorney, she goes, he, he's not planning on going to trial with this, is he? Because you know, the racketeering charge was to scare me into a quick plea deal. Of course. Quick We've, gun notch in their belts. Yeah. Or, or suicide, like in the case yeah. of Matthew Perna. Right. Which yeah. Because yeah, that's, because that's just the, the, that method. Well, the suicide's even less paperwork for them. So yep. the, the, um, but w one of the, you, but, but that's what they expected. And so he, she says, your, your client's not planning on going to trial with this, is he? And my attorney goes, do you, have you ever read the shit he writes? <laughs> and, and that was his response. And he, he's a good libertarian too, by the way. And that's my Raleigh attorney. And so, and so fast forwarding two years, I, I'm now associated with a much larger bullhorn. So I don't know. I, I don't know if they're, if they're past the point of caring now at, because of what they have, as we talked about what they have gotten by with for the last three years, four years, really. And, and if they're past that point and they're going to go to the mat with me, well, we're going to go to the mat with them. Um, uh, we already have six attorneys on my team now. Uh, we could show up. We could ride into town whenever my trial takes place. If it takes place with as many as 10 or 12 attorneys sitting at my table with me in the gallery, I'm going to have OJ's dream team. And we're going to have our, if I, if a glove don't fit, you must acquit moment. It's all, it's going to happen and they're going to have to deal with it. And they're going to have to work for this. And this new AUSA, he may be looking at this right now going, God dang it. Do I want to deal with this? I don't know. You, you got a FAFO on this. Like, this is the case you got to surrender on New Year's. You got to you got to say you had an active arrest warrant. You didn't put it into NCIC. You didn't think that I would get pulled over in a traffic stop between now and then. 
oh wait, I thought that I, that I was a domestic terrorist. Wait, you, you said that I should surrender myself and you didn't have an active arrest warrant for it? I mean, the, the questions that your attorneys could put in front of a FBI agent or any, frankly, a U.S. attorney's office here, it's just riddled. There's, there's a lot there that you could do, especially for as much as you're being exposing everything that's gone on here, how they've weaponized the process mm-hmm. about it. Like, here's what I, th- I think happened. This guy, uh, they found a new U.S. Uh, US attorney that's going to take it. He wanted to take Christmas off. He wants to get New Year's off. So he had to scrap the plan for you to surrender yourself because he was going to have a, a conflict there. He was probably going out of town and doesn't want the new guy to get credit for his arrest. But all this this paperwork here is you can use to your advantage and to say like, FAFO, man, I'm taking it all the way. I'm putting you for a decision for your chips on every single hand because I know you don't got it. And make sure your lawyers get the date and timestamp of if and when these warrants were ever entered because I'm sure the FBI trolls uh, who are listening are now scrambling to be like, oh, we didn't do it. And these guys know that we're supposed to. Oh, we better do it and get it yes. done. Yes. Well, this is this is the most current update on my uh, situation. So on a Thursday of last week, one week ago today was when I got the 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 message from my attorney that uh, Agent Noyes had contacted him and that, in fact, they were expecting me to self-surrender this past two or two days ago on Tuesday. And then on Friday after hours. So he waited till after five o'clock Eastern time to call my attorney back. And Agent Noy has now told my attorney that they have decided to postpone my self-surrender date until sometime after Christmas. No date specified. And then that was when he was also informed of the new AUSA assigned to my case. And so that was all we had. And, um, and then he called him back at my urging to find out, can you tell me what the damn charges are? And he specifically said, Agent Noy is that he doesn't know he really doesn't know because until a judge or magistrate actually signs off on the warrant, he won't know what those charges are. Yeah. How That's about take it to a grand jury, yeah. assholes? Yeah. Like, how no, about how, do your how job? How could you surrender if they haven't already gotten a process to charge yeah. you yet? How There's are you going to FBI away. agent if you don't know the charges that you're allegedly investigating? Give me a break, dude. Yeah. It yeah. gets All worse it. and worse, man. Well, it gets, it gets worse from here. So, so now, so now, finally, on Tuesday, uh, one of my new attorneys on the team actually has a conversation with the brand new AUSA, Adam Dreher, originally out of Michigan, failed uh, um, uh, candidate for state senatorial seat back in 2018, and now he's relocated relocated to DC to handle these, you know, these trials. The party. Yeah. So, uh, so he finally gets on the phone with him, has a conversation. And in that conversation, he asks him what the charges are going to be. The AUSA denies him that information and specifically says, I'm not going to tell you because we know that your client will immediately go public with it. And that's what it's all. That's, that's literally what it's all about right here. God forbid Um, there's government transparency when it comes to criminal charges. And that's why we're doing this. Um, so look, folks, we're we're running up on a hard stop up here only because I know Ryan's got to get some other stuff done. I've totally enjoyed just kind of cutting it back and forth. We've gone as much free form as we can do, and we're going to do it more, and we're going to do it again. And obviously, Steve, anytime you want to come back, now you're going to have to ask your handlers over at The Blaze. Hopefully, they'll allow you to come and chat with us <laughs> mm-hmm. the way that uh, yeah. Steve handlers have led us to. I hope you will be able to come and chat with us more, and we will continue to expose it. You can always come here, and uh, any story you write with them, we'll come and talk about it as well. But thank you for joining us. Thanks for uh, Amrads. Thanks for being part of the whole thing, making this a, a joint interview. Um, let me start plugging some things. First of all, I want to plug Steve, 
Baker's Twitter so people can see it. That's where his stories are going to be able to be seen. That's where you guys can follow his work. Will you throw that up on there? There it is. It's TPC. Just remember the pragmatic constitutionalist TPC for USA. Uh, apparently your your protein your proteins are beef and beaver. Um, we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> That's my, every time I see that, I, I think I should ask you about it, but I'm gonna, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to just let everyone wonder what it is. They can uh, they can follow you on Twitter and find out. That should be the way it goes. Um, closing thoughts, Steve. Friend. Oh, I just remind everybody we're uh, going to be rerunning the show on the Amrad Podcast uh, Rumble channel. So if, if you missed the beginning of it, and you want to get it there, then you can. And uh, also, if you want the audio, we are now streaming on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify, all the audio versions of it. So thanks everybody for sticking with us for this marathon. But yeah, you it's can have good you to can get have the group together. Another round of the chat there, Garrett. Any closing thoughts? And I'll give the last ones to Steve. Yeah, uh, I think this goes for all of us. Proverbs twenty nine, right at the end of the chapter. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, but one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. So I just want to thank all of you, Kyle, Steve, and Steve, for being an abomination to the wicked and letting me take along on this journey. This would not be a Garrett O'Boyle appearance if we did not have a scriptural quote, so I, I feel like I have gotten the piece that I required. Uh, Mr. Baker, you have any final thoughts on there? And I look forward to talking to you again on Dinesh's podcast, too. Look, Garrett, uh, Steve, Kyle, all I can tell you is that um, I am honored, humbled, and blessed to be associated with you guys, to be an honorary sus suspendable, and um, thank you for what you have mean to, meant to my life, over, especially over the last year. And uh, uh, I think there's going to be a lot more turf for us to uh, cover and to work together uh, on going forward. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and Merry Christmas to you, Mr. Baker. And gentlemen, I will see you guys again soon, uh, uh, Steve Friend and Garrett O'Boyle. And we will talk to Steve on the Dinesh Podcast next week, guys. I'll give you guys the update on there. So follow our social, at Kyle Serafin. Uh, follow Ryan, who's been doing a great job keeping up with all the mixing uh, turns and twists over there. There's Ryan. You can follow him at Ryan Matta um, on tw True Social. You can find him at Ryan Matta Media on, on X. And then you can also find him at Ryan Matta on Rumble here. So all that, let's do one five-star review and let's close this sucker out, folks. I know we've gone a long time on it. And so I want to just thank our five-star reviews that come in all the time on the Apple Podcast. This is Articulate, Honest, and Thorough, written by Casey Shell. Thanks to Dan Bongino. I tuned in for the first time. Kyle, you're Articulate, Honest, and Thorough, which is why I continue. Your firsthand experiences add to the credibility necessary to keep us engaged and too often in disbelief. Your time and hard work put into your podcast are most appreciated by this Midwesterner. Guys, we're going to cover all of your Rumble rants. I've screenshotted them. We'll cover them all tomorrow. I want to thank you guys all for contributing on this on this long marathon and uh, for showing the support for me and the guys uh, including mr baker he's not honorary suspendable he's a real suspendable god bless all of you guys merry christmas to the families of these guys and we'll see you again tomorrow morning you've been listening to the voice of the suspendables on the american radicals podcast follow us on rumble.com slash am rad pod